Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. I'm Jim Browdy, ahead on Boston Public Radio. Today is International Women's Day. Much progress in Massachusetts as virtually all constitutional officers are women. But it's been a hard year for women around the world and at home as abortion rights are pulled farther and farther back. We'll check in with you about it all at 877-301-897. I'm Marjorie Egan. We'll talk with two members of Boston's new reparations task force formed just last month. And what does Boston owe its black community to address centuries of violence and discrimination? We'll ask Chair Joseph Feaster and task force member Carrie Mays about the work ahead. All that ahead to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GPH. Marjorie Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. You're supposed hi, to say, Jim. hi, Jim. How are you? Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. So today is International Women's Day. It's meant to mark the political and social achievements of women around the world. But in America and internationally, women's rights have experienced a backslide. Along with democracy in general over the past year, our lines are open to get your thoughts at 877-301-8970, call or text. The Dobbs decision, of course, and other anti-abortion pushes have eviscerated a woman's right to choose if and when she has a child and is already putting women's health at risk. Take the case of one Texas woman who's suing the state after restrictive laws in her state prevented her from receiving proper medical care until she was in a life-threatening situation, even though doctors knew her baby would not survive. Internationally, the UN said today that the Taliban has made Afghanistan the most repressive country in the world for women's rights, effectively trapping women and girls in their homes. Did you hear the head of the UN also said... It'll take 300, 300 years, years for there to be gender equity wow. in the world. It's not all bad, though. Massachusetts remains a bastion for women's reproductive rights in America. And this past election saw this terrific wave of female leadership. And, of course, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team won their fight for pay equity. We want to know, though, how you're feeling on International Women's Day. Our number is 877 You know what I also left out of this is obviously the situation in Afghanistan with uh, the Taliban and the education of girls uh, virtually disappearing. The wage gap is almost, the gender wage gap is almost exactly where it was two decades uh, ago. It's really been uh, women leaders like the great Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand stepped down for whatever reasons. It, it, on, for the most part, it has not been a terrific year for women. Yeah, although part of the wage gap is it, it, it not that it should be uneven. It's because I think there are many women who say the hell with it when they realize how difficult it is to have a intense job and have the kid and be the head of the household. Which but that's not a but, is. that's an and, I would argue. It's because they get no support. They get, I mean, well, exactly. Exactly. Right. And they and they just, uh, you know, say that that's it. I'm not going to do it anymore, at least uh, for part of my career. And then the time they go back to their career, they've lost out. They're behind the eight ball. You know what this, uh, uh, I say 
this to you occasionally. It was sort of like when Trump was president. We'd talk about him every single day, and then maybe once a month I'd have this moment where I sort of stepped back and looked at us talking about this, and I say, I can't believe the people of the United States thought that this would be the right leader for this country. The same thing I feel about Dobbs. When I woke up and realized it was International Women's Day, I sort of took a different look at what now we know to be the case, that the Supreme Court of the United States of America essentially, not essentially, uh, undid a right that women That's in this right. country have had for 50 years, one of the most basic civil rights that women have. And as we've said a lot of times, you see what they're doing in France with uh, Macron trying to change the two retirement years, age? Two years. Two years. A million people yeah. on the streets they or want, something. They want to raise it to 64 from 62, and they are going absolutely crazy. And the point I'm trying to make there is I know there was that a fabulous women's over. march, uh-huh. but we have our day, we have our week, and then we roll over in this country. We just do. Well, uh, let's play a little of the sound of these women from Texas that are suing. They're not suing to try to overturn the effective ban on abortion what are they in Texas. About? They're suing to allow the physicians to decide when they need medical care because of a disaster in their pregnancy. That's what they're suing for because the physicians are so concerned about losing their license or being fined or going to jail. I mean, they they face uh, people that uh, are involved in abortions in Texas face prison sentences of up to 99 years, $100,000 fines, and the loss of their medical licenses has scared a lot of doctors into not providing abortions or even mentioning the word abortion. But let's hear the sound from some of these women they are suing, as I said, just to let physicians instead of politicians or waiting until all hours for the ethical board mm-hmm. of the hospital to meet to decide whether they should get an abortion. Here they are. Sounds like a pretty sick and twisted plot to a dystopian novel, but it's not. It's exactly what happened to me while pregnant in Texas. I didn't even know a pain like that could exist until that moment. I love Texas. And it kills me that my own state does not seem to care if I live or die. Whoa. And I just want to give a, a little bit more details on um, uh, these women. Um, they kind of defy the stereotypes, as, as Kate Zernike from the New York Times points out. She should be the globe, Formerly by the way. Formerly the globe, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, they, they're, they're married. Uh, some have children already. They wanted to get pregnant. One had gone through 28 weeks, uh, months, I think, of uh, fertility treatments. And then they found out their fetuses were going to die. Two of them had no skulls. Two others were uh, threatening the lives of their twins, which often happens where one twin becomes dominant and one twin mm-hmm. suffers or does not survive in the womb. These women faced uh, hemorrhages from carrying those fetuses. But listen to this. When they realized they had to get out of Texas, they found themselves sneaking across state borders to get medical care outside of Texas, not worry, not wanting to tell their family or their neighbors or anybody else because there is a bounty uh, uh, in Texas. You report someone for aiding and abetting an abortion, you get 10 grand. So these women are sneaking out of town. Um, and, and one last thing. Uh, One of these plaintiffs, Amanda Zorowski, was told she was not yet sick enough to receive an abortion, and she twice became septic, which can kill you. And um, she was left with so much scar tissue that one of her fallopian tubes is permanently closed. Can you imagine a man going through this? No, I cannot. 877-301-8970. Call us or text us. Your reflections upon the state of women in this country and around the world on International uh, Women's Day. That's what I was talking about with the Dobbs thing. It was sort of like it's so easy to to 
and we should obviously criticize the Taliban for how they treat women and girls in particular. Obviously, we know what happened when that woman was likely killed by the morality police uh, in, in Iran. Iran. Yeah. And, then there were and those nothing has really changed. No, but there's also a relentlessness to the protests there. I don't want to get back to the same topic you and I discuss all the time, but it really is incredible that a, a compare, and we've, we've always done this, compare France with the retirement thing, raising the retirement age, what is it, from 62 to 64? Two years. As compared to the assault on basic women's rights in this country. We're also going to talk about the rights of trans people, in this, uh, which has become a central theme of Republican campaigns. Campaigns, the attack on trans people's rights uh, when we have Juliet Kayyem with us at noon. 877-301-8970. You know, one more of these abortion sure, cases. Sure, And by the way, it wasn't 28 months of fertility treatments. It was 18 months. Okay. So I apologize for that. So after 18 months of fertility treatments, which are very trying, you have to take shots every month. And it's a mm-hmm. real tough thing. And in many places, you have to pay for it yourself. And Massachusetts insurance will cover it. So this woman, in her 17th week of pregnancy, the day after she made the guest list for her baby shower, uh, the scan at the, at the physician's office showed that um, these cervical membranes have begun to uh, prolapse, and, and that means that the baby is not going not gonna to survive. Um, but her doctors told her, despite this, and despite her water breaking, which is very dangerous for the mother if the baby is still inside you, uh, the doctors told her she, they could only... Uh, she wasn't sick enough, basically, to get um, an abortion. So she and her husband considered driving 11 hours to New Mexico to get the abortion, but they've been told to stay within a 20-minute drive of the hospital in case she went into labor because you don't want to be going into labor on the highway. Uh, she said she was so worried about being prosecuted by authorities in Texas, quote, I didn't even feel safe Googling options, she said. I didn't know what they could and couldn't search on my computer. I mean, it is like The Handmaid's Tale. It's absolutely crazy. Anyway, so three days later, uh, they were still told they couldn't legally abort the fetus because it still had a heartbeat, even though it was going to die, even though it was not able to survive uh, inside the womb. And the woman finally got a fever. Uh, she her husband got panicked, or fear went up to 103, and they said they were going to have to, at the hospital, receive approval from the hospital's ethics board while she's lying in extremis. Anyway, they finally had to, uh, she finally developed a blood infection. And not only that, uh, but she got so sick that her family flew in while she was getting a blood transfusion because they thought she was going to die. She was going to die. I understand that. So I, I, I don't know what we're, what we're uh, you know, I don't know if people don't think about these things. But what we're essentially saying is that politicians can decide whether you are an extremist enough, whether you're sick enough to actually die in some of these states. I mean, boy, that's a great appreciation. Well, and also unelected judges, uh, six on the Supreme Court of the United States, decided to uh, rescind a right that had been granted in this country for 50-plus years. Let's let the callers have their say. Zion, you're in JP. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, so I think they're taking these rights away. I think all this ramping up you see of scaling back of women's rights, transgender rights, they are ramping all this stuff up because, I don't know, to me it feels like they need scapegoats. Because, you know, capitalism is failing. They want you to be scared of trans people. They want you to be scared of people in drag. And, you know, if you're going to take away abortion, it's like you see how this hurts people and how people die because of this. 
it, you know, it's not about, it's never been about saving babies. It's just been about, you know, control. Of control, of course. Yeah. What they want. So Zion, why and do we I take it? That, why do we stand for it? I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, I try, you try to do things in your own way. I mean, I'm a man, but like, you know, you try to speak out against these things. You try to say something, but I mean, I, what, I feel like a lot of people just feel lost. I mean, it's just <laughs> no, stopping short of like, I don't know what, like burning buildings down. What should people do? You know? Well, so, I, the answer is, I, I don't want to come to that, but. Yeah, Zion, thank you. We have a bad connection. You know, thank you for your call. You know, um, Zion reminded me of Renee Graham's column today in The Globe. We're going to get her on the show very soon. She's Yo, a great columnist for the Boston Globe. And she was kind of saying it's all of a piece, this kind of Christian nationalism, which she says is just a cover for white supremacy. All the, the attacks on LGBTQ rights, trans rights, women's rights, voting rights, all these things are kind of a, a piece to um, – distract people from the real issues, but also to make, make sure that this white supremacy um, survives. And I think she's got a, a, a great point about that. 877 Where would you like us to go next, uh, friends? Let me read a, um, a uh, text here. Susan okay. says, I generally say that these special holidays are hallmark events, but not this one. If we survive as a country, we will look back in shame at choices that are being made for us uh, without us. And Deb from West Roxbury says women have to get more politically involved on the state and local level. The Common Start Bill, which needs to get passed in, Man- in Massachusetts, needs a groundswell. Do you know what the Common no, Start Bill is? Deb, send us back. I don't even know what the Common or Start Bill Or one of our colleagues can check. Let's take a call. Um, they also pay transparency bills on the docket that need our support. Kathy in Providence, you're next on Boston Public Radio on International Women's Day. Hey, Kathy. Hi, you guys. I know you're from Silent Spring, so just... Oh, oh hi. Hi. You're a great, great organization. organization. And by the way, Kathy, tell people what Silent Spring is if they don't know. Uh, we're the only organization that fights uh, researchers to find out what is the cause of breast cancer, and our research is now worldwide respected. The chemicals and we're I'm ingesting, sure. right? In our yeah. in our food, in our in our cleaning uh, materials that we have under our in sink, our medicine in our shampoos, cabinets, in the bathrooms, in our deodorants, yeah. the chemicals that are linked to breast cancer. It's really scary. But anyway, Kathy, thank you. What's going on today, Kathy? Well, I'm really concerned about this uh, court case in Texas. It's been given to a very conservative Trump-appointed judge yep. about medical abortion. If that thing gets to the Supreme Court and is approved, what that means is that any procedure. Any medication for any whim could be disallowed. This is a very serious problem. The way the lawsuit is written, as I understand it, it's probably flawed enough that it's not going to get through, but it's only the first. Well, also, we've talked about this a few times. Uh, For people who've missed it, since Kathy brought it up, it is hugely important. Not only does this guy, the Trump appointee, have a history that is almost solely focused on anti-abortion rights, uh, but he has the power to grant a nationwide injunction about the uh, provision of this uh, uh, one of these two drugs used for medical abortion. So the impact could be felt well beyond the borders of Texas, as you know, Kathy. Yeah. There's one other comment I want to make, Please. guys, and that is I'm 76. I have fought for women's reproductive rights as long as I can remember back to – I don't even want to go back that far. And I have to tell you that even though I'm not of childbearing age, I do not feel safe. And many, many other women are in the same situation. We are not equal until we have the way, a way, the way to protect ourselves. 
and to regulate our own reproductive lives. We're not full citizens. Kathy, thanks for your call and your thoughts. We really well, appreciate it. To quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I wish had retired when Obama was president, so we might not have been in this mess in the United States Supreme Court, but nonetheless, you can't have uh, economic freedom without reproductive freedom. And she was absolutely right. You can't plan your life. You can't uh, be assured that you can continue in the job you're in if you cannot control your reproductive life. Anyway, we're talking about International Women's Day. Things are not going that well for the ladies, I would say, at this particular juncture, either well, in the United States. Well, Massachusetts is an outlier. Well, we are an, out, an outlier, but we too may be faced if there's this ban on the abortion um, uh, medical medicine, uh, the pills. I always mispronounce them, so not American I can't pronounce it either. But the two pills, th- that could be a problem for us as well. Anyway, we're talking about uh, abortion rights and rights for women all around the world, from Iran to the Taliban uh, to uh, the Roe v. Wade overturning. 877-301-8970 is the number, 877-301-8970. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan and Jim Bradley. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about International Women's Day, which this is, hearing your thoughts on women's rights in America and abroad, sort of state of women in 2023. Our number to call or text is 877-301-8970. Bree in New Hampshire, thank you for calling. Hi there. Hi there. So Hi. forewarned, I do have my five-month-old with me, so you'll probably hear him babbling <laughs> we're here. Happy oh, okay. To hear I think he should weigh in on the subject, Bree. <laughs> He has some strong opinions, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, of it. Sure. I'm sure of it. Um, but anyway, when I was pregnant, I real it was you know a lot of the throw v Wade nonsense was going on about overturning it and all that fun stuff. And I had a moment for myself when I was pregnant of could I have an abortion right now? And I really couldn't fathom it being pregnant. And that was really shocking feeling for me because my entire life I've been extremely pro-choice yeah. and then one day I had this epiphany of of course I I I I don't consider having an abortion because I have a stable home life I have a supportive partner I have a career where I make a, a good living and my husband does the same I have resources I have supportive family you know that really solidified why the choice over our own bodies is so important because it's not about what we're going through. It's about thinking about what other people mm-hmm. are going through and having compassion for you, that. You know, Bree, that was a great call because uh, you're right. It's um, poor poverty is the major reason why women have abortions, and most of the women who have abortions are mothers. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember years ago after the murders at the abortion clinics in Boston, uh, Planned Parenthood let me into the clinic there um, that used to be at the end of Beacon Street in Cleveland Circle. And the woman I interviewed who was having abortion was in tears the whole time. She had just gotten off welfare. She uh, Her birth control failed, which it often does. She wound up again pregnant with her third kid, and she knew she was going to lose her job and not be able to support her children. And um, it was really hard for her, you know, but but as you say, who is someone to make that decision, right, for somebody else, right? 
Well, they made the exactly. decision for somebody else. That's well, what they did. Exactly. Right. But I'm saying, who, no, who, who do people think they are for saying uh, that you should make that decision for for somebody else? Bree, that was a great call. Thank you very much. Good luck with your five-month-old. 877-301-8970. You're not having the same moment I have, I'm having that this is America in which this is all happening, are you or are you? Well, I, 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 yeah. Sort of like an out-of-body experience kind of thing. Listen, I am one of the people that was totally wrong. I never, ever thought that Roe v. Wade would be overturned because I thought it would just be the death knell for uh, those who tried to overturn it. Now, it may be the death knell for those who want to overturn it because we saw in the last – in the midterms, right, that a lot of Republicans who – it's kind of like, you know, it's like the, what happens when the dog finally catches its tail, right? I think a lot, it's easy to be pro life or anti abortion uh, or uh, just. Until you win. Until you win. And then you get these stories like this woman in Texas and, and you know, it, a middle class woman that people can relate to that nearly died because she couldn't get an abortion. Then Republicans are backing off. They're somehow not touting their anti abortion. Uh, uh, bona fides as much as they used to because they're going to pay a price at the ballot box. And I hope that's that's true. But as somebody just texted a little while ago, the majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. And Donald Trump talked about being uh, anti-abortion all during the campaign and how he's going to appoint anti-abortion judges. And he did. Well, who is the first uh, to twosome to whom he said uh, what his criterion would be for picking justice as Supreme Court? Uh, you and I, Jim. You and I. That's he said right. two things. He said in New Hampshire they had to be bright and they had to be pro-life. And my favorite part of it, which I've said a thousand times, but it bear, bears mentioning, the next radio interviewer, a woman, heard our interview. And she said, I just heard you say on another radio show that you want pro-life uh, uh, justices. Can you give us an example of somebody who you'd choose as a justice who's pro-life? Who did he choose, Marjorie? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. His sister. Oh, that's right, his and sister. Who is the judge, by the way? Uh, <laughs> what about his sister? pro-choice. His pro-choice, yeah. <laughs> So obviously it was a really heartfelt uh, thing on his part. <laughs> Ellen in a car, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi. Good Hi. morning. Um, Hi. This is such a scary time, and I just don't know how women could not have seen this coming. I mean, like you just said, I mean, Trump literally said, this is what I'm going to do. And everybody was like, no, that can't happen, mm-hmm. or that they don't vote. And it is not. it is scary, as another caller said, this isn't just about one drug. I mean, if this goes through, you can do anything off-label. Right. So they can start coming for that. And the other thing that I just wanted to mention was um, this whole idea of conservatism. Um, If you don't want to go to a a drag queen story hour, don't Don't go. go. If you don't want to get an abortion, (laughs) don't get an abortion. I'm so with you. And and the last thing, too, I'm sorry that I said that was the last one. No, 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 um, keep going. Yeah, that women, I mean, that men are, white men are somehow endangered. It's like, are you joking? It's like, ooh, you can't tell a, a black joke anymore? The horror. Ooh, you can't grab your secretary's butt? Oh, my God. They're coming for you. That's how yeah. You know, so Ellen, ridiculous. the point you made about, uh, you know, the, the Republicans <laughs> are supposed to be small government, right? They're supposed to be non-intrusive. Of course. But they always seem to be intruding the bedroom. They have a theme. You know, remember down in Florida, they were actually talking about asking 
uh, young girl athletes in high school to submit documentation about their periods. I mean, thank oh. goodness th- there was a there was a backlash to that. But that's what they wanted to do down there. You know why? Because they didn't want to have any trans athletes competing in high school. So that's what they were going to do. But even in Florida, um, that was a step too far. But it's just it's just crazy. Ellen, thanks for the call. It was terrific. Eight seven seven three zero one. Uh, 8970 is, uh, is, uh, our, uh, number on an international women's here. So, uh, why are, are we the outlier, would you say? Who? Massachusetts. Why on reproductive freedom, uh, there is vir- virtually universal, uh, 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 protection and, and vociferous defense. And there are virtually no Republicans in Massachusetts. So that is the voice of Massachusetts. We elected five out of six women to constitutional Offices. The only man is a guy who's been there for a long time, a Secretary of State. So it was virtually a uh, clean sweep. Why did we? Why were we able to resist the trends, not just in this country but in the world? Do you think? Well, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know why. I'm grateful because you're in much better shape in a lot of areas in Massachusetts than you are elsewhere. Whether it's the schools or it's reproductive rights or uh, we're good on everything, Jim, except transparency of public records. We're terrible about. It. <laughs> No, also, but as the caller said a minute ago, and we've said uh, to virtually everybody, including Governor Healy the other day, if this judge in Texas issues a national injunction against this drug, uh, arguably until it's overturned, which it won't be by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals because it's the most conservative court in the country. I don't know what will happen to the Supreme Court. Uh, what happens in Massachusetts, despite the constitutional protection here? Well, I, I think you're going to have to go back to a physician to get an abortion. You're not. I mean, there is the second drug. There's two drugs that, that, in the medical abortions. Right. And the one this that only is, relates to the one. The first drug. So yeah. the second drug doesn't work as well. It's more painful. It causes uh, more cramping and more discomfort. But it's, it's supposed to be pretty effective on abortions. But it's going to be interesting to see. Walgreens has announced that they're not going to uh, sell these abortions. And drugs because they're worried about the legal consequences. Now, uh, people even including anti- in three states where it's legal, mm-hmm. it's still legal to have an abortion. And the anti-abortion forces have gone after CVS and uh, and Walmart and Kroger and Kroger's at Kroger, whatever it is, yeah, Kroger, like great big supermarket chains. So let's hope that those places don't uh, back down because I think half or maybe more than half of abortions now are are performed by these drugs as opposed to going to a clinic. Laura in Topsfield, thank you for calling. Hi, Laura. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to suggest that we expand this conversation and we stop talking about it as just abortion care. This is women's health care. So let me give you an example. I have never had an abortion, but I have had to have DNCs for other health care issues. I had a, a miscarriage that um, after three weeks of waiting for it to happen naturally, it never happened. And so I, um, my doctor wanted me to have a DNC in order to, um, to protect my health. There are states that are now denying women the, the ability to get a DNC for, because they call it abortive care. Right. Um, and, and so they can't get that care that they need to protect their health. Um, I also think that, and there's been, when I was perimenopausal, I had um, to have DNCs to protect me, uh, to um, help me with uterine polyps that were causing causing massive bleeding. So there are health care issues right. that go beyond what um, is being, um, you You're know, right. these abortive care You're things. Right. And they need, it need, so we need to have a conversation more about women's health, but even broader about women's rights. These women in Texas 
had to sneak across the state border to get the care they needed. (laughs) So we are restricting women's rights to cross state lines now in some states. Mm -hmm. Think about that. There was a state legislature in, in, um, in the country that passed a law that said that all women working in the legislature cannot have bare shoulders and have to wear a jacket. That what? Same, where was yes, this? I missed this. Where was this? Uh, it's in the Midwest. I'm blanking on where it is right now. But um, they also tried to pass it in, the, in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. Congress, and it was voted down. <laughs> so there is a whole effort here to limit women's rights to have freedom. And let me just give an example Can here. You, before if you I continue, woman, be, before you continue, I thought yeah. outrage, this is CBS News, outrage after Missouri lawmakers <laughs> implement a stricter dress code for women in the state mandating that their shoulders be covered. So, I mean, yes. I don't know how we missed it. And Go ahead, continue, Laura. Oh, wait a minute. We're going to ban slacks the, pretty soon? Go ahead. No, pantsuits? Right. That very same law, they tried to pass that in our U.S. Congress in Washington, D.C., but it was voted down. So there is a bigger effort around the country to do this and to impinge on women's rights. So let me ask you this. If if there is a woman who could get pregnant, so she's young enough to be able to get pregnant, working in a corporation in in, uh, Texas who needs to travel to Boston for a conference, does she have to get permission from the legislature to travel to make sure that she's not pregnant and that she's not going up there to get an abortion? I mean, That's what, an excellent point, at what Laura. level are we going to start impinging upon, you know, really making this government ruling women's lives? Laura, you're terrific, and you're doing a much better job than I'm doing here. Thank you for joining our show. Really appreciate it. Well, years ago when abortion uh, was legal on the country, I had a crusade that it, it, women shouldn't have to go to outlying freestanding clinics to well, get You believe they should abortion. be done in hospitals. They should be done in hospitals because uh, you'd have a lot more privacy there and there weren't, wouldn't be these people with signs yelling at you as you uh, went to the clinic. And I always thought, imagine if you wanted to get Viagra and you had to go to the Viagra store at the corner, freestanding Viagra mm-hmm. store, and men had to go in there and get it. I mean, can you you think that would be endured for like no, two seconds? No, obviously the protests would be unconstitutional. <laughs> I mean, isn't that – that would be goes, a 9 nothing hey, vote, There I think goes there. Joe. He's my next-door neighbor. He's going to the Viagra store. Oh, there goes my great-grandfather. He's 80, and he's still going to But can I tell you, that call was a really important call because you do – we were focusing so much on the Dobbs decision and all the trickle-down impact of it, but it just – almost every direction – it goes. You take. There is an assault well, on women, assault on – and we're, again, we're going to discuss at noon – the universal assault on the most vulnerable population in America, trans people, by virtually every Republican candidate running for president of the United States. Well, we're States. going to talk about that with, with Juliet, Juliet the, the CPAC convention. It's it was grotesque. just absolutely disgusting. It was just disgusting. But anyway, things are going well, I'd say, overall on International Women's Day. No problem here. <laughs> absolutely Well, not. I mean, but you can celebrate for a, a brief moment some of the things that are happening in our state, which That's right. are not happening elsewhere. Maybe That's we can right. spread That's the right. wealth. What did I call it? Was it estrogen something or other? Oh, you did, yeah. An epidemic. No, you did. It wasn't an epidemic. Estrogen surge? Was that estrogen surge, something like that. Whatever it was. Maybe it's progesterone surge. I don't know. Something is surging here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and I'm very glad it is. Anyway, coming up, Boston's first ever reparations task force will study the legacy of slavery in Boston and its impact on descendants today and explain what the reparations task force is going to be doing 
Uh, next, we'll speak with the chair and one of the task force members on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And we're joined in studio now by Joseph Feaster, chair of Boston's new Reparations Task Force and fellow task force member, Carrie Mays. Uh, Joseph Feaster is an attorney, currently at Dane, Torpy, Larray, Weist, and Garner. I pronounce that right? That's right. I did. Yes. He's also the chair of the board of the Urban League, former president of the NAACP. I can't do the whole resume because we only have 20 <laughs> minutes. Uh, uh, and Carrie Mays is a youth activist in Boston. She helped organize one of the biggest Black Lives Matter protests in Boston after the murder of George Floyd. Joseph, Carrie, it's great to have you both here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you very much, Jim and Marjorie. Yeah, thank you very much for coming in, both of you. Um, so let's start with you, Attorney Feaster, since we do have a history here. How did this task force come about? Well, uh, it was the Boston City Council. Uh, in fact, the conversation had been on for some time, but it was uh, December of last year that the Boston City Council uh, uh, signed an ordinance creating the task force, um, and then Mayor Wu signed, uh, signed on to that and appointed 10 of us to serve as the reparations task force. And we uh, took off, well, we'll soon get sworn in formally, but we have been uh, formal, formed, uh, say, last month is when we first got together. And besides, in addition, Joseph, staying with you for a second to your uh, the beginning of your resume that I went through, you're a descendant of enslaved uh, Africans, are you not? Well, in charge of yes, in the sense of, but again, the question is uh, from the from Boston. My family on my father's side, North Car- uh, from South Carolina mm-hmm. to North Carolina to New York City, uh, and on my mother's side, we were in. Uh, um, in in South Carolina, but on the eastern side. So the so the question is, most black people, yes, going to be descendants. Mm-hmm. Somebody came across Middle Passage to either Virginia or or other places where they landed. But the question is, what is the connection to Boston? And that's what Carrie and I, I will be working on with the task force. Carrie, why do you want to be part of this? Um, because one, I am a youth activist for the past seven years. I've been doing a lot of community engagement work, um, politically, civically, socially, um, artistically as well. For the past seven years, I've always, I've also been working at an organization called Teen Empowerment, yeah. um, where we hire young people from the community to be leaders and agents of change to to speak to the issues and address all of the inequities in their communities. And so, um, I always talk about Black Lives Matter because I was one of the young people who helped organize like. Like you said, the biggest Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter protest and something that I was always adamant about is you cannot talk about Black Lives Matter without reparations. Right. Um, When you talk about reconciliation, when you talk about justice, you can't talk about all of these things without talking about um, slavery. Carrie, I I just wonder, how old were you when you were organizing the, uh, the, the protest? I was 19. 19, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, Carrie, staying with you for a second, I know your first public meeting, I think, is next week. Is that right? The 15th or something? When's the... Yes. The yes, fr- okay. yes, we will be so meeting on the 15th. going into, the, into that, Carrie, with you, is is every member of this task force in favor of reparations in some form, but the issue is how do you how do you sculpt that thing? To whom is it directed? What form should it take? Is everybody pro... I mean, you describe yourself as a reparationist, uh, yes. Joseph. Is everybody on the committee, as far as you know, Carrie, in the same uh, situation? Absolutely. 
Um, I believe that a lot of our um, our viewpoints align, and I think what's so beautiful about the reparations task force is that is that it's intergenerational, mm-hmm. right? So that um, you're getting different and unique perspectives. And also, um, a lot of us have been doing this work around activism for a very long time, and so. You know, if you don't believe in reparations, why are you on the task force? But I, I do believe and I know that everyone on the task force um, does believe in reparations. And, and Jim, I, you know, the way I've been trying to define it, and first and foremost, I want to say here publicly, I want to thank the city council and Mayor Wu for putting together. Uh, it was the unanimous vote in the city council, yes, too, right? And, yeah. Yes, and, and the task force. So that's first and foremost, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to serving with the nine other members. And we haven't, you know, so any views that Carrie and I give are our views because we haven't defined it. But to me, there are four questions that, that need to be answered by on the question of reparations. One is, how much is the debt? Who is entitled to reparations? Who pays? And if there's going to be payment, when do they get paid? Mm-hmm. Those, to me, are the four questions. We may not answer it on our task force, mm-hmm. but to me... That's what we will be working towards as we gather over the next year and a half. We're, we, uh, our tenure is until December of 2024, according to the ordinance. And there's three phases of the ordinance as well. We're talking to Joseph Feaster and Karen Mays about the Reparations Task Force here in Boston. You know, I think um, uh, when you look at research by places like uh, Pew Research, they say 77% of black Americans, 18% of white Americans, there's a big divide who supports reparations and who doesn't. But I, I like to think that there is just a tremendous amount of ignorance about uh, things like generational wealth. I mean, I am always embarrassed by what I don't know, and I learn reading something new. And I remember reading ta Coates' piece in The Atlantic a few years ago, and I... He, I was floored by what I did not know. So tell us about the whole generational issue in terms of generational wealth that he highlights. I think you guys, do you guys know about this? The guy in Chicago that uh, uh, wanted to get a house, and he thought he got a house. Tell us about that uh, story, because I think it's a really instructive one. Well, I, don't, I may not know the, the specific story, Marjorie, but I think that what we're talking about here, and, and, I, and I always suggest to people, because everyone has a different definition of what reparations is, right. mm-hmm. and if you even were to look at the African-American Commission on Reparations, they have 10 points, and I would say to everyone to take a look at what they are saying. What we are, and we have yet to decide what re, what form reparations will take. If right, you look at what right. the, this uh, African American Commission has done, they've said should it be monuments? Do you look at the question that people were denied housing, people were denied loans, people? If you look at the history, there's been redlining in Boston. Here we had Beeberg. Uh, we had explain denial. that. Explain that. Beeberg was yeah. an organization where the banks and the government circled around Mattapan, uh, broke up the Jewish community, which was primarily in Mattapan at the time, and made that the only area where they where the banks would grant loans to uh, to black people to live. So, so we've had that. We've had redlining. We've had uh, in terms of the. Uh, indeed, deed restrictions saying that black folks couldn't live there. We've had denials of VA loans. So in our looking at reparations, another, this is a feast analogy. I don't want to put it on anyone else. For those who say, well, it wasn't me. I wasn't the one that did this. I'm saying I have yet to find a bank that says that if the original borrower passes away, 
the debt is forgiven. <laughs> I have not seen that. That's an they always point. say that the estate <clears throat> pays for yeah. it. And that's what we're saying about reparation. And we haven't defined who the estate is, as to who pays. But that's the analogy that I say to folks who say, it wasn't me. Right. But I guess the Ta-Nehisi points, uh, his point was, Ta-Nehisi Coates, rather, is that people that are unaware of of our history here, which mm. is a lot of us, probably most of us, think that it's all over when slavery ended, you know, after the Civil War. And I always thought the GI Bill enabled both black and white veterans to come out of World War II and take advantage of the GI Bill. And it that's no, not true that either, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And um, speaking of generational wealth, um, I'm I'm in college right now. I'm majoring in business management with a concentration of marketing. Um, but in high school, for my senior project, I wrote a 10-plus page research paper on the deconstruction of Black Wall Street and how that affects black Americans today in our society. And so when we think back to, like you said, the, a lot of this historical context that has been wiped from our history books, um, you know, talking about black Wall Street and generational wealth and how that has been dismantled and how much harm has happened. I think it's so important to be looking at um, the history that we are not usually taught in schools. Are you, you know, talking about also, Tulsa? Are you talking about Tulsa? Yes, you talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, explain that to people that may not know what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1906, the founder OG or OW Gurley, um, if I'm not correct, I'm trying to remember back to my paper that was like 2019 <laughs> when I wrote that paper. That's okay. Um, so he so purchased <laughs> he purchased um, a plethora of acres of land and he created something called Black Wall Street, where all of the businesses, the hospitals, the the churches, um, everything around that economic infrastructure was black owned, um, and, and also was you know very open but very you know black owned, black centered. And um, over time, there was a a race riot. Um, where actually it's been found and invest- through investigations that there was institutional influence in the de- deconstruction. There were bombs. Bombs were dropped. The, the victims of the families were put into concentration camps. Um, and, you know, it was just a, such a sad story. But they since then, um, it was not wiped a lot of people, out, basically. It was wiped out, right? exactly. Yeah, and hundreds but, were killed. But I think that story, the, uh, I'm going to pick up on what Marjorie said a couple of minutes ago about the public education part of this is not only did we not know about Tulsa when it was talked about a lot in the last presidential election, uh, uh, but uh, we had a young black man call who grew uh, call the show who grew up you in Tulsa, Tulsa. Wow. and said he didn't know, he didn't know wow. about what happened a hundred plus years years that, ago. That made and you me know, feel better. Jo- you know, uh, will there be a portion of this, Joseph, where there will be? Uh, forums where the public can learn. For example, we've talked about reparations on the air when people say, well, it's never happened in this country, never should happen. Mm-hmm. Well, in was it 1988? It was some year in the 80s when Congress gave twenty dollars or $25,000 to Japanese people yes. who'd been mm-hmm. interned mm-hmm. in World War II. Right. A Tuskegee, a, we, also there have been reparations. It's not, it's not an aberration in history in this country, but my sense is the opposition for the most part and it's just my speculation, Joseph, is lack of information or ignorance about what we're talking about rather than a, a rock-solid opposition to the concept. Well, in terms of, I, Jim, I think it's both. I mean, and that's why I gave that analogy to the banking. The More folks. Saying, yeah. And also, the the racism for black people is insidious. So in mm. terms of, it's a whole different dynamic right. when you start talking. And if you talk, and, and if you talk about the history, I always say to one, 
there's no other race of people that were brought here against their will. That's the that's the history of black people. So again, yes, to answer your question, Jim, there's going to be a lot of public discourse. In fact, I can see Carrie's going to be leading part of that effort because we want to be intentional, we want to be inclusive, and we know there's divergent views out there. Mm. So part of our process here with the task force will start with getting engaging someone, hiring someone through an RFP process to deal with the history because we know that the history and the conversation is broad. So we're going to do that, but then we have to narrow that down to answer the questions which I posited yeah, sure. earlier on. Of course. But part of that would be the education. So, yes, we would hope to educate and talk about Rosewood and Tulsa, Oklahoma, and all the other places, the denial of loans, the VA loans, folks fought in the, in the World War II, we're not able to get VA loans. Uh, we were not able to get HUD loans. So all of that is inclusive in this whole conversation of what we define as reparations. Yeah, I, I just want to stay on this one more minute. I don't mean to beat this, but it's. Mm -hmm. I would bet everybody listening to the show can recite a specific statistic that was out of research by the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston mm -hmm. that was in the Globe series on racism in Boston in 2017, right. that the average wealth of a white family was 250 grand, the average wealth of a black family, $8. $8. And people think it's a typo. And it seems to me that just didn't appear out of nothing. It appeared in great part because of some of the things you mentioned, Joseph. I mean, yes. tracing back, how do we get to the place mm. where a white family in Boston has a quarter of a million dollars in wealth right. and a black family has virtually nothing? And it, 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 I'm glad to hear that public education is going to be part of this. And Carrie, also, there are parts of the country. I, when I had a television here, show here until December, I had a woman on who was leading the effort in Evanston, for example, mm -hmm. where they're doing these housing grants of, tw I think it's $20,000 that have been given to a bunch of people. Uh, some people in Evanston, Illinois, are saying not enough. But because they decided that would be the primary shape of what mm. reparations will be. Obviously, you're gonna, I assume you're going to look at other efforts in California and Evanston and around the country. Absolutely. I think, um, one, it has to be inter intergenerational. I think, two, um, one of our phases is community engagement. So um, the first phase the first phase is research. The second is community engagement. And then the third is the list of recommendations that we then propose. And so I think it is critical, like Ayanna Presley says, and I always love to quote her, the people closest to the pain should be yeah. the closest to the power. This is not only about me, right? This is about a bigger picture. This is about a collective. This is about engaging and amplifying the voices of the community and their perspectives and their experiences, right? The experiences of, of Dr. Feaster, the experiences of me, the experiences of all of us together and how do we address that harm, I think it has to be intergenerational and it has to be community engaged. So when you say community engaged, you mean people coming to your meetings or sending you in emails or telling you what they think about this? What do you mean? All of the above. Yeah. Um, so I am... You have a lot of emails. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I'm Gen Z. So I believe um, interacting with social media. I believe in doing um, listening tours. I believe in um, Instagram and, you know, all of the... Like there is such a... We are living in such a creative digital world where um, accessibility is more convenient, thankfully. And also, not just um, socially, but also on the grounds, like physically, being in the community, going and meeting people where they're at. We're still deciding and still figuring out what the community engagement process would look like, but definitely um, th those are some of the ideas that I've been thinking about and the task force has definitely been thinking about. 
Joseph Easter, could you just spend a second talking about the? Uh, but I know the decision hasn't been made. Research hasn't happened, but just the potential forms that reparations might take. I mentioned twenty thousand dollar checks to those who had suffered internment during World War II, Japanese Americans. What are some other potential possible forms of reparations that the committee might recommend to the city council? Well, uh, Jim, as you mentioned, this is a conversation that has been going on, is going on presently all around the country. Uh, it goes back to Congressman Conyers. Uh, he he's talked. He From introduced Detroit. bills. Uh, I think right now the bill is called Article uh, 40. I, I don't want to quote numbers, but mm-hmm. there's a bill that's going through Congress right now, which emanates from his great work for, for many, many years ago. Locally here, we had the late Senator Bill Owens introduce mm-hmm. matters around reparations. We have in Everson, Illinois, Los Angeles, California. They've just, uh, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. We we just had uh, um, Atlanta, Georgia has, has uh gotten funds for its reparations committee. So, yes, we're going to avail ourselves of all of those. I mentioned the National Associate, the African-American uh, Commission on um, on Reparations, a national organization. They've met twice in Everson, Illinois. They just recently met in December. There is a um, there is a international Association on Reparations. They met in Bogota, Colombia in December. So the discussions are there. And some of the things... The 10 points, and I, I invite anyone, just go online, because that's what I did. I'm a lawyer. I went and got facts, mm-hmm. just like I got facts on the know to make sure I knew about you and Margie. I wanted to find out <laughs> that's you know, right. our, our connection We have a South Bronx connection that's from right, way that's back. Right, that's right. So I wanted to be able to do that. So the point is, some of the things are reparations. Some folks are talking, uh, in some of these things, those 10 points, they talk about monuments. They talk about having... Uh, approaching it from the same same uh, museums like around the Holocaust Museum mm-hmm. in terms of museums. We talk about affordable housing programs. We talk about dealing with health. We talk about dealing with the criminal justice system. Uh, system. So they have a lot of things uh, that we've talked about. And like Carrie said, the intergenerational road, there was denial. And we know that majority of people, particularly in the white community, that were able to deal with intergeneral wealth, wealth was based upon the ability to do home ownership. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So home ownership is going to be a key to that conversation. And right. so I think that that's, those are some of the areas. And each community is going to be different. And that that the remedy, as as the three phases that Carrie referred to, the last one is going to be the recommendation as to what form of reparations that we would recommend to the mayor and the city council should take place in Boston. Right. But that will be from input of speaking with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We only have about a minute left, but really quick, I get these emails all the time, and maybe you can answer this. People saying, oh, well, my family suffered in the Holocaust. Why why should I get, why didn't I get reparations? Or we just got here from Puerto Rico or some other, Venezuela or some other country. I just got here and I didn't do with slavery. So why should I be supporting reparations? What would you say to those people in 30 seconds. <laughs> um, I would like to ask a question, which would be, where does your hum- humanity lie? Excellent um, question. You know, that's that's what I would yeah. ask. And mine in, in the short 20 seconds, Margie's just yes. coming in. None of those folks came in. Uh, uh, we're not brought here against their will. Mm-hmm. That's the distinction. And that's what we're dealing with. Our folks came across the Middle Passage, and I'm not sure whether the ones who survived, the ones who benefited, or the ones who didn't make it, or the ones who made it here. But we're here. 
but we were not brought to aggressive will, and that's what we're focusing on. And I recognize, as Carrie points out, we feel for those persons that were other races and folks from other communities that were affected, but we're focusing on what happened to black people in America, and that's what reparations that we're going to be discussing. Hopefully Thank you so much. Joseph Feaster really is an attorney and chair of Boston's New Reparation Task Force. Carrie Mays is a youth activist and a member of the task force. Thank you very much, both Thank of you, you for coming in. Yep. Thank coming you. up, Thank you. two Americans us. were kidnapped along the border in Mexico. They've been found dead, allegedly the unwitting victims of cartel wars. A national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, discusses this. The latest on Fox News line to its viewers about the 2020 election and more. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. I'm Jim Browdy, head on Boston Public Radio. Republicans just wrapped up their annual four-day-long conservative political action conference, or CPAC. Speakers voiced extreme, in some cases, violent rhetoric about trans people. That includes former President Trump, whose hold on the Republican Party appeared as strong as ever. We'll get thoughts from national security expert Julia Kayyem. Then a look at paintings by Claude Monet and others, which reveal early signs of recognition of climate change. We'll talk about it with GBH's Jared Bowen. I'm Marjorie Egan. In Everett, yet again, accusations of racism against Mayor Carlo Di Maria, this time after a vote not to renew the contract of the school's most popular superintendent. GBH's Liz Nislaus has been following the story, and she joins us. Then naturalist and animal expert Cy Montgomery just got back from a trip swimming with humpback whales. She'll tell us all about it ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. So we're joined now by Juliette Kayyem. She's a former assistant secretary for Homeland Security under President Obama, the faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Her latest book is The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Hello, Juliette Kayyem. Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. And Hello, you. Juliette Kayyem. So lots of times when we talk to you, I get encouraged because you tell me that, you know, we've gone after these 1,000 people that were down at the January yeah. 6th uh, insurrection and that, you know, it's a, the, thing, the extremist uh, fear we had is maybe subsiding. Then, then I read about the CPAC convention and we have Tucker Carlson lying about January 6th on the most watched show, cable show on television. Um, but let's let's start with 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 CPAC. Do you want to play some sound before we even go there, or do you want to just talk about it for a second? Well, let uh, Juliet start, and then we can play a little okay. sound. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit upset because, like, Marjorie doesn't listen to the second part of what I say, which is if you're looking for uh, 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 kindness and warmness and love from these people, you're 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 going to come up short every single time. So the 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 measure is is this. Thing of 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 uh, 
of violence and and the extension of violence and the disinformation about violence and the you know the 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 come hither of violence is it growing or is it not and i think that the arrests that i always talk about are significant there's other Metrics. So CPAC, the most important thing about CPAC is not what is said, like stop thinking Trump and all these disgusting people are uh, going to be good. Look at the room. I mean, that's embarrassing. As I've been saying, very small house. Yeah, Sorry, everyone. Yes, he cannot fill a room. Trump, let alone all the minions who are anti-trans and anti-woman and anti-reproductive freedom. So I take uh, uh, those are the metrics I'm looking at. I, I've, I've resigned myself that hateful people, uh, 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 you know, are, 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 are we're better when they're isolated rather than when they're strengthening. And I think CPAC's isolation as a moment um, that it used to be is something that uh, uh, everyone had to go to is just over. And that's good. Remember, it's leader. I forget his name is accused of groping yeah. another man. Um, I mean, you know, the 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 sexual issues around all these people as well is just, you know, um, interesting. Let's just say you know, interesting. You know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the small house and hopefully it means what you think it means. But having said that, at least by everything I've read, there was not one single speaker who chose not to attack the most vulnerable population yeah. in the United yeah. States of America, trans people. Donald Trump did it, uh, as you'd expect. And he says, and ask Congress to send me a bill prohibiting child sexual mutilation in all 50 states. That's how he describes it. But this guy I never heard of, Michael Knowles, oh, some God. Internet commentator. He was one of the speakers. Listen, I mean, this is like genocide. Listen yeah. to what this guy had to say at CPEC. If it is false, then for the good of society, and especially for the good of the poor people who have fallen prey to this confusion, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology to at applause, every level. To the, to the applause from that forum there. And the thing I worry about, since it's mm-hmm. pretty obvious to me, we're a year and a, whatever it is, six months out from the election, this attack on transgender people is clearly going to be a centerpiece of virtually every yeah. Republican yeah. campaign. And the fear I have is while I want a Democrat to take it on frontally and, and crush it as it should be crushed, my fear is that it puts the Democrats who want to protect the rights of people in most of these cases uh, uh, in a position where they can't get out their yeah. core. You know what I mean? I mean, the yeah. re- no, 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 no. So they were going to be you know, they, the they, cultural they, they issues the stage yeah. Yeah. as if as if transgender uh, issues and people are the are the problem. Most important thing our, facing as, this country. Right. Our economy, right. Our exactly. Security. Right. It's, it's all their problems. So I, I think that you're starting to see I mean, a couple of things. First of all, this guy. This guy and the fact that you and I have no idea who it is, is I think also consistent that in terms of the kind of people that they're having, they're so at the bottom of of, of, of the MAGA um, extreme. He, once again, uh, tries to do what Trump did, uh, which is, I, you know, he's, he's now pushing back saying, I didn't say transgender people. I said transgenderism as if there's a distinction, mm-hmm. right, between between the uh, something. I don't even know what transgenderism means, but, you know, he's trying to separate it and pushing back on the eradication language. We all know what he means. Right. What does it mean to eradicate something from public life? Um, and obviously the impact that's having on the transgender uh, community. 
you're starting to see some pushback on this. Um, in some ways, the the unwillingness, and I, and I don't engage it because I, I think it's just ridiculous, the unwillingness to engage in the arena on this, I think is a very smart move um, uh, in, in terms of, 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 of not jumping every time you know, Trump says transgender, right? So let them talk to their already converted eradicationist or whatever you want to call them. And then I think the other is what you'll you'll start to see is I hope is a, is a um, uh, a uh, the, the the strategy has got to be we're not going back to mean. I mean, I think that that's Biden's. I, we're not going back to mean. These people are mean. Uh, and I think most Americans appreciate the whatever you think of Biden, just getting that meanness out of the out of the public arena. So we'll see if the Democrats can can manage this narrow lane. Um, but what a gross. I mean, honestly, you know, it. it I don't even I don't even pretend to put analyst words behind it. It, it is such a gross yeah, I mean the most vulnerable populations who are just you know people trying to 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 be become, left alone exactly. to live yeah, their lives, to become who they yeah. are, meant their to be. Lives. By the way, the guy live their lives, and it's like you know, I mean, what what percentage? I don't even know what percentage of the population is. It's just it's the most ridiculous. Is I mean, it's ridiculous and it's in its horror. I think is is the truth because if you are transgender, and I think all of us have family members and close friends who are, it is, it is, um, it, it, it is being heard by that audience. It's by sadism well. is what it is. Yeah, you know, I think and, by right. the way, Matt Schlapp is the name of the guy who is yes, head Matt of Schlapp, Matt Schlapp. Yeah. So the other half of what Marjorie mentioned a minute ago yes. is what Tucker Carlson has been doing the last couple of nights. Here's a piece of what he had to say to his roughly three and a half million viewers about the January 6th footage that was given to him exclusively <laughs> by the uh, Speaker of the House. Here's Carlson. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. By controlling the images you were allowed to view from January 6th, they controlled how the public understood that day. They could lie about what happened, and you would never know the difference. Yeah. Now, the two good things coming out of this, uh, I think, are one, he is helping to make the $1.6 billion claim for Dominion every time he opens his yes, mouth, which is, is great. Unbelievable. And the other thing is how many, at least four Republican yeah, was, leaders in the Tom, Senate. Tom Tillis, uh, Mike Brown from South Dakota, John uh, Thune from South Dakota. There was one more. And Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell Romney, leader, and Romney. trash Mitt, Carlson Mitt and Romney. Romney right. called the whole thing disgusting and dangerous, which yeah. made so me. Why um, are they doing that? Why do yeah. you think they're? I mean, this is my. This is consistent with what I, I was telling you, Marjorie. Because you can't win a statewide race on one six conspiracy theory, yeah. right? So, so you can win your crazy gerrymandered district, uh, as we've seen um, on this, uh, but the Senate. Uh, uh, is uh, is statewide. This polls poorly. Why they would want to go back to this as a strategy rather than move on? As everyone, you know, either either you move on or you convict and 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 punish. Uh, but the idea that you uh, rewrite it 
uh, is not good politically. And they know that. Right. And Kevin McCarthy, what a fool um, in terms of not only what he agreed to, but he's got no defense. And you see him. I don't feel sorry for him at all, but you see him trying to figure out a way in which to justify what, in fact, he did, given what we know Tucker Carlson was going to do. I have a theory about Tucker Carlson. Oh, do tell. So why would Tucker Carlson do this? Um, So and then I want to go back to uh, Jim's point. This is being done in the background of Dominion, which I I I am. I I tweeted last night. I don't know the company. I couldn't name a single person that works there. I don't know who their lawyers are. I don't know. However, however, (laughs) I want them on my team. Yeah, I want during the zombie during the alien Armageddon. I want them on my team. Oh, my God. These people are, you know, they bring the lawsuit. So they're doing these very strategic uh, releases of what is essentially Tucker Carlson basically saying Trump is Trump has ruined us uh, and um, and all of them knowing it was a lie and all of them knowing it was a, a, a strategy. So Fox is in is is has to figure out a strategy. If you are Tucker Carlson, you've got two options. One is um, you hope that you win in court and your company uh, supports you. But if you read the depositions that I've been reading with Mr. Murdoch and others, you are worried uh, that you are expendable at this stage because they do not want the liability. So like Donald Trump, his big mentor, you bring it down with you, right? You're, in other words, this is what Trump is doing with the United States. I am not, I am, you know, I, I am bringing, I'm, you know, and Netanyahu is doing in Israel. These guys are not going to face um, a reckoning uh, without bringing the system down with them. That is why he's putting Fox at a vulnerability now at this moment. How no one there stops him is uh, is, a, is a management issue that none of us can explain. But uh, I am now, I used to not care, I am now of the school that the United States military, the greatest military in the world, uh, is um, is aiding the enemy. And I mean national security enemies by airing Fox um, um, on our bases. And I think Biden ought to do it. Uh, uh, it is it is a every time I go to the military, I'm always shocked by it. It is a nefarious uh, cancer uh, that is that we that we as the United States government are going to endorse and promote amongst our military. This is a this is a, a organization that sought the end of American democracy, or at least comforted it. And and you know, let's 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 play hardball. Well, you know, when you watch him, and I actually did watch him Who's last him? night, Tucker Carlson. You did. I, I, I taped it, and then I went back and looked at him. Um, I could, I can't stand it for long. But again, he's very clever at what he does. He concedes that this is now that the Republicans are on board, at least some of them, with the. Uh, this was a insurrection and it was horrible yeah. that happened so then he posits this question to his his viewers right the question he said, now they're all on the same side now the republicans and the democrats they're all talking about an insurrection what's the angle why would they all be doing this i think we need to look into what's going on here that they would all agree so he pu- he puts forward another you know a rabbit hole he doesn't they answer all... the question I assume. no yeah. that's okay. what they do they don't answer a lot uh-huh. of the questions they pose a lot of the questions and people are thinking oh yeah there must be a reason why mitch mcconnell and you know elizabeth warren are on the same and what right. is it about so it's 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 very seductive i can see why people 
well, fall and for then, it. And then their guest, their slanted guest, because they'll only have one, answers the question as an analyst rather than as a reporter. Right. To which then he says, that's so interesting. <laughs> right. You know, like, oh, that, you know, that, you know, that, that, uh, that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to endorse democratic socialism uh and uh and uh and 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 turn all all children under 10 transgender is is you know and then and then tucker goes that's interesting and he follows you his know, brow that expression on his face you know, i know he looks I, like this he has I, this right. classic I, I'm, expression. I'm, you know I'm, 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 you know i'm smarter than i am look right you know <laughs> in other words like it's you know it's like um yeah anyway i was going to say something mean well but one la- let me ask you for one last uh, prediction of the future vis-a-vis this tucker carlson thing more often than not, law enforcement groups endorse Republicans. Yeah, uh, uh, they're the ones who care about law and order. Theoretically, there's no law enforcement official, even if he or she watches Tucker Carlson, who does not know that law enforcement officials were assaulted that yeah. day. They know what happened to Officer Sicknick the next day; he died. Uh, they know that two officers who were there that day committed suicide within days of this. Excuse me. So do law enforcement? Excuse me. He had a Capitol Police big deal guy from the Capitol Police on last night coming, to buttress, to buttress well, but, but his argument. But the head argument. guy has been trashing The head, the head guy, the head yeah, guy yeah. Been... And that's a former guy, Marjorie. I mean, you know, right, it's a former guy, but it works. It works. It's not hard and he's a find. black guy, and he's yeah. and he's giving a very impassioned argument. I mean, I can see why, again, why people fall for it. But go ahead. Well, you know, you and I have the same discussion every day, which I know is a waste of I just can't believe people are this stupid. And you say, and you may be right, you can settle the argument that they choose to be in this one bubble and this one bubble only so they don't know anything other than what the generic Tucker Carlson feeds them. Is that your analysis of this too? I think, think, you know, how much any of them actually believe it, how much, you know, when they're pulled, you know, I never trust the answers, you know, like... um, uh, uh, in, in in terms of the number of Republicans, is it actually a third of Republicans believe that there is no insurrection? I don't I don't know because all of these become proxies for yeah. do you hate you know Nancy Pelosi? That's and exactly boring, right. That's exactly right. So, right. It's, yeah, it's, that's so exactly don't forget right. Hillary and Hillary. Right, <laughs> they never forget Hillary. So and they don't. Uh, and so that that I, that that is worth it. But I I think the the desire you know his his appeal people are seeking it out and i think the the only counter to that is you know is is obviously coming back with the truth but is is trying to get uh amplifiers who are closer to his side to say the other yeah. and let's just be honest sue the crap out of them yeah. right i mean it, it's it's not like uh it's you know do, the dominion case it's not a the Dominion, for scenario. those who are not into it, this is the voting machine company, yeah. which they suggested helped uh, uh, switch votes that were cast for Donald Trump automatically uh, to uh, Joe Biden. And they're suing, they're suing uh, Fox, among other entities, for one point six billion dollars. I'm that's sorry. Right. For, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and in the de- and to the, de- the depositions that have come out have shown. Uh, uh, not just their primetime hosts who are well, whose politics are well known, but their so-called legitimate uh, uh, reporters and hosts and entire apparatus uh, looking to switch uh, the call for Arizona. The early call for Arizona was a was a moment that night that it became clear that Trump was on an uphill battle. They wanted to retract it, as had been done in Florida. 
in Bush v. Gore and then also uh, uh, lie consistently uh, about Dominion, knowing that there was no basis for it. Uh, it is a um, and 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 you know some of their ho some of their hosts are you know, have gone down the rabbit hole. It's not even it's not even a uh, it's not even play acting where you can argue Tucker's play acting. I think Maria Bartiromo. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean she. Uh, you know, you look at her and 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 you see a person who's so drunk the Kool Aid. Uh, you you, it, there is, I don't think it's an act for her. You Can know, we move on? Don't you wish Mr. Pillow had his own show? I mean, that's, yeah. that's yeah. right, <laughs> Mr. Pillow, uh, Mike Lindell. Okay, we're talking to Juliet. So Juliet Kayam, uh, let's talk about this um, tragic end in, oh. in in Mexico. Four people in a car. The mother uh, of, of many children, because um, we saw them interviewed the the grandmother and the kids on mm. on CNN this morning. Apparently, she went there to get a tummy tuck or something. Yeah. Her, her mother told her not to go. She said she'd be fine. Uh, they crossed the border into Mexico, uh, were abducted and uh, kidnapped by armed uh, cartels, apparently. Two of them lost their lives. The third uh, gentleman was shot, and the mother... Eight times. Yeah. yeah the, we, and we don't know who's who in this in terms of the death. So, but they uh, were driving around for a long yeah, time, so for hours, of, lost. I mean, I, I didn't know you could do this, just drive into Mexico yeah. and drive around. Yeah, so Matamoros is an uh, area of Mexico that's on every list about sort of places that uh, that Americans are essentially told it's the equivalent of going to Afghanistan. So there are there are, there are pieces. It is it is ungoverned except for through the cartels. The Mexicans know this, and and if you if you read about this area uh, near the Gulf. Uh, you know, there's a there's also I don't want people to think the Mexicans don't care. And Mexico is is uh, uh, it's got a lot of collusion in its law enforcement. It's got a lot of uh, grift. It is uh, the the public, though, has been begging for the public there has been begging for the government to come in in a much more um, aggressive way. Uh, as these cases often are, it takes four Americans to get any focus on on this for us and for the Mexican uh, government. Um, and it is it is it is a rare incident and it's horrifying because hey. they are lost. They are get in the middle of what what everyone believes is not a targeted attack. Um, they are then um, does the cartel panic? We don't know. They are then moved around um, and then finally found. Uh, and it is. Yeah. It is hey, trapped. Juliet, I should know the answer to this, but there are there not some places in the world that I am not allowed to go by my government. For example, can I go to Afghanistan if I want to go to Afghanistan? You could go to Afghanistan. You can. If you want to go there. Yeah. You Are there any places I am not allowed to go? Is it America? The reason I'm asking this question is why? Do I, and I'm a pro freedom person when it comes to this freedom of movement person in particular. If we, as a country, have identified this as one of the most dangerous places on earth, yeah, why, why do we even allow our people? Well, I mean, so I mean, if you have a, a relative who's, uh, you know, on yeah, her deathbed. Part of it is that. Part of it that is that. Part of it is, uh, as a diplomatic issue. It'd be, I mean, first of all, you're not going to say people can't go to Mexico just because certain areas can't are go to that there. state. Why can't no, we? But, I mean, how, how are you going to enforce it? These people huge, even said, right? Even said, right? It's huge, but also even said that the area that they were in. I think that they were there on accident. Uh, but look, it's not the responsibility of the United States government. And I believe this strongly, like, you know, to to if, if people want to take that risk, they are taking that risk. It does not mean that U.S. resources have to be delivered 
to stop them for this. One of the reasons why you 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 don't want to do this if you're an American citizen is the pressure to, uh, you know, essentially uh, 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 require U.S. action puts our service members or whoever else, our, our intelligence assets at risk. You don't want to put that extra burden on them. So that's why we have levels. Uh, and and this area is a is a is a level that's equivalent to um, uh, to uh, Afghanistan. It's it's known as Baghdad Beach. I mean, it is like like we don't need to make it up here. Like okay, and, so one more it's just horrible. One more question: If we can't uh, uh, stop our people from going, when people cross the border into that state, Afghanistan-like state, yeah. do they get a warning by United States officials at the border or a piece of paper? Saying there's no one airing. at the there's no one at the border. Sometimes there's no one at the border. Yeah, oh. they just you drive can enter in. Afghanistan Jesus. through. But so sometimes, so sometimes it's that. But I don't know. I mean, uh, 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 you know, they entered. I mean, they entered through a very well known border um, crossing uh, thing. Yeah, in uh, right near Texas. So th- this is the problem was with your enforce your enforceability uh, uh, aspects is uh, you've got a, a million people crossing the border lawfully every month or week stores. or whatever. Then yeah, it is it is, and also just remember it is rare. Like I mean, and and, and uh, but it is it is such a tragedy, and for such a stu- you know honestly for such a stupid reason. Um, uh, I understand vanity. Trust me, I I I, I can get it, have it as well. But you know, part of you is like they weren't visiting the dead grandma, the dying yeah. grandma. Yeah, Julia, I would make sure I don't. I haven't made a mistake here. My understanding is that they just drove right across the border and no one stopped them or questioned them. But maybe I'm mistaken because the border is huge. Yeah, no, 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 no. That, they, they went through a law. They're, they went through a lawful. Oh, they did. Ex- okay. Into Mexico. Yeah, the, my understanding that, that that was not. And then it was a family member who realized they hadn't been heard from. Okay. Okay. Juliet, uh, thank you for this upbeat discussion. Come on, come on. Yeah, I'll see you in two weeks. I'm on on spring break. Oh, well, have fun, whatever you're doing. Talk to you soon. Be well, Juliet. Thank you very much, Juliet. We've been speaking with our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, who thankfully corrected me on that one. She's a former assistant secretary for Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, faculty chair at the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Her latest book, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Up next, is Claude Monet trying to tell us something about the climate and all those blurry, gloomy landscapes of his. Well, wait till you hear what our arts editor, executive arts editor, Jared Bowen, uh, has to say about that and more in the art world. He's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie We're joined now in Studio 3 by GBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen, who two days ago parked in my parking space in the garage across the street. How are you, Jared? Nice to see you. It was 9.05. <laughs> if you weren't here by 9.05. I had a dental appointment, okay? That's and I right. I zero sympathy. Well, yep. unfortunately, I had to have your car towed. My apologies. <laughs> But I had to do what I had to do. Jim's Tesla, la, 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 has Thank a special parking space, mm, as yes. we all know. Yep. So this is a fascinating piece uh, by Darna, um, Darna Noor in The Globe, talking about speculation over whether 
the earlier paintings by such classic artists um, as Claude Monet showed climate change, soot, smog happening in big cities. They show in this piece his, his picture of a beach uh, from 1867, clear sky, clear air. And then they show this Charing, uh, Charing, Charing Cross Bridge excuse me, in London, and it's all blurry. And they think it's blurry for a specific reason. We've known this for a while, actually, that uh, a few artists like Monet and J.M.W. Turner were depicting, for, for different reasons, but were depicting some of what we now construe as, as climate change and the impact of the Industrial Revolution on the climate in their paintings, especially in the case of J.M.W. Turner, who was very concerned with labor practices, especially as the Industrial Revolution took hold. He wanted to depict that, and we saw that in a recent show at the Museum of Fine Arts, the Turner Retrospective, that looked at how how he depicted laborers, how he depicted pollution in the sky. Uh, and we know that Monet did this as well. He often went to London. He had a very nice room at the Savoy Hotel, and he would sit up there in the hotel and look out at, um, I think, Charing Cross Bridge, and he would depict the Thames. But what scientists have done now is taking these hypotheses by art historians, uh, but actually put science to it, and they measured basically what was in the air at that time, how the, how the world was changing, how the climate was changing, uh, trying to examine sulfur dioxide and the effect that might have in the air. And they determined that, yes, they actually were, with their easels, depicting climate change and smog. Yeah, I, I have to say, I didn't even understand the whole piece. I, and the reason, I, what I think I missed is, was the, was the author saying there's a school of thought that not only were they depicting climate change by painting the smog, was it an intention on the part of the artist to warn the viewer of the art that this is a problem? Or were they just painting the reality as they saw? Do you know? You're... Yes. Yes, which? <laughs> yes, yes to Monet, just painting. I think Monet was probably more painting what he saw. Uh, but Turner was very mindful of the world changing and what he, he wanted to okay. represent. Okay. So in his case, he was doing that. But I think that what the scientists were doing was hearing art historians say this. They wanted to see if they could actually prove it. But then not only to prove it, but to see how these two different artists uh, represented pollution and smog. Monet was kind of enchanted by this different light. He had a different practice in, in the, the, the smog, the pollution, and, and the different effects that that had over the Thames, especially with uh, different levels of sunlight and how that would filter through the smog. Did you think about this before you... I mean, I assume this is pretty obvious, though. I don't mean to belittle the thinking, but I assume this was obvious to you. I when thought you it was work, kind right? of impressionism. I'm sorry. I'm, I thought, yeah. you know, it's just kind of like that, that gauzy look to some of these no, paintings. But even, even I know. You compare the yeah. two, yeah. and it's like... Okay, but I'm well, sorry. It was nice to... It was interesting to see, having known this and having these theories of art historians to know... I, I thought it was really fascinating that the scientists could actually connect the dots on this, and that there is enough available research to be able to tell a lot of what was in the air, like the sulfur dioxides, to be able to measure it, uh, and how we can have these conversations with artists and art history. So, Jared Bowen, this is another fascinating piece. This is from the New York Times. What's this one? Talking about how over the years, to protect art oh, this is in, a great in piece. museums and the other artifacts there, uh, uh, museums have gone to elaborate lengths. I mean, they put in these expensive climate control systems, and they have these energy-guzzling technologies um, that they've justified because of the need to help these artworks survive over the years. You know, these big air conditioning units and dehumidifiers, et cetera, et cetera. As I said, they're energy-guzzling. Now they're rethinking what they're doing. Well, 
So you, this is really fascinating because so much of what we look at in museums has been sitting in castles and other museums and homes for centuries and centuries. Churches. Churches, long before we had air conditioning and, and devices that could control the level of humidity. Uh, but especially over the last 50 or 60 years, definitely post-World War II, museums uh, led by an initiative in, in the UK actually began to pay more and more attention to climate control. Uh, of course, as technology developed in the 20th century and the way that they could control humidity and temperature to make sure that paintings didn't start to crack or peel, that wood pieces were protected and that they didn't split, uh, that metal didn't rust. And so obviously this has become huge in the museum world and conservation circles that you have to have certain standards. Well, in order to have those certain standards, you also have to have air conditioning. And we now know what that is doing to the planet. And so... Recently, especially as energy costs in Europe, Europe have written has have risen because of the war in Ukraine. By the way, I was just talking to a friend of mine who lives in the Netherlands. Her heating bill is thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars this winter, and this is just what is the norm now in in Europe. Museums have begun to analyze, well, how much climate control do we need? We certainly need it. Things need to be protected. But is there more latitude? So they've become uh, reduced... To save money. To save money. And in the case of uh, the Guggenheim Bilbao, uh, which has celebrated its 25th anniversary this year by featuring its entire permanent... A lot of its permanent collection, this is significant because uh, they have no loans. So nobody is saying, okay, I'll give you this, but you have to keep the room at such a certain temperature. Temperature by having their own condition, by lowering the temperature in certain cases or, or, or letting the temperature increase, they realize that the work is still fine and they're saving tens of thousands of dollars you a know, month. In this piece in the New York Times, it says this all started, this climate control inside museums uh, with Yale University Art Gallery installing a steam-powered heating system in 1874. So what happened to art prior to 1874? Was it all cracking? And I mean, what was happening? Well, certainly it would deteriorate. deteriorate and this is the question. Did we go too far? Right. And by the way, you the climate control standards you have in St. Petersburg, Florida, for example, where the Salvador Dali Museum is, are going, that's going to be very different from a museum in Boston or a museum in Barcelona. So maybe we don't have to have these universal standards. And so museums are really beginning to push back now, including some museums who are saying, we won't abide by your restrictions on the loan so if you if you want to have a certain temperature take your <laughs> take your picture elsewhere we don't necessarily need it because they they need to push back of course conservators are on top of this and they're not going to do anything that's dangerous uh, but I think they realize that they have more flexibility and latitude so work doesn't d get destroyed speaking of the Dolly Museum do you not agree that Ryan Landry's dog looks exactly like Salvador Dolly <laughs> I mean is that not true? Where's Ryan Landry? We haven't talked well, to him for he, a I week. I think after Christmas he goes to New Orleans. Oh, he goes to New Orleans. Okay. It looks exactly like Salvador Dali. It's got like the little mustache thing. Don't you think yeah. it looks like Dali? It's been a long time. Yeah, Dolly, the, Dolly was actually He's in, in, the, his, Christmas in show. the Christmas show every yeah. year. He's in he the is, Christmas yeah. show. He's like the star. Whatever. Okay, that well, obviously you don't know the answer. What? 45 years now. <laughs> 45 years <laughs> okay. old. Okay, no, they won this national the adoption last, competition. The last few years, I should I should. Oh, maybe he has a new dog and I haven't seen no, it. No, it looks exactly. They call Salvador it Dolly. Dog. It looks they, exactly like That's right. That's why I said Dolly's been in the show, Jim. Oh, that's exactly right. So let's talk about Make Way for Ducklings. People, of course, know the great book. Oh, there's a picture of Look at the photograph. The, the dog. Which one's Dolly and which one's the dog? 
I mean, that is unbelievable. Isn't that oh, great? I had not seen that. that is Isn't that great? Like Salvador Dali. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I'm a fan of Salvador Dali's mustache, though. I mean, really. I love it. I love the wax thing and the twist yeah. and up deal okay. and whatever. Okay, what were you about to say? I was talking about wake, uh, Make Way for Ducklings. Uh, this is a, a wonderful production, it sounds like, at the Wheelock Family Theater, which is a place that Alice can go as well, even though it's a children's theater, and have a blast. Tell us what's happening. And lots of grandparents. The day I was there, lots of grandparents, I could tell, taking yes. their grandchildren, too, which is really, really sweet. So, of course, we know this classic book uh, by Robert McCluskey from, the, from 1941 uh, about Mr. and Mrs. Mallard trying to move their family over to the public garden. Well, this has now been updated for Make Way for Ducklings, the musical, and it has been co-adapted and created by Michael Bobbitt. Michael from the J. Mass Bobbitt, Cultural? Yes. From the Council. Mass Cultural Council. Oh, wow. Before that, he was artistic director at New Repertory Theater. Before that, he was uh, leading a children's uh, theater in wow. the D.C. area. Uh, so this is his area of expertise, um, and he was quite struck by this story. And also looking at this story as somebody who is a recent arrival to Boston, so what does it mean to make your home in Boston, just like Mr. and Mrs. Mallard and their many ducklings? Uh, and so they have rendered this on stage. And so we see them struggling to be in the city with where to park and a cantankerous police officer trying to get them to quiet down and just all the commotion of living and being in Boston and the attitudes of living and being in Boston. Uh, and we find their adventures after they're hatched and their learning adventures, like how to be kind, how to be prepped for the world, how to negotiate the world uh, and we see in a very funny scene how they're roiled in the the Charles River before they finally peacefully make their way over to the, the public garden. You know, speaking of Michael Bobbitt, I didn't know we had the sound. Here is Michael Bobbitt with you on Open Studio talking about what went into his musical adaption of Make Way for Ducklings. There's so much story in the pictures that I got to just live with the photo, with the illustrations for for months, years, and just pull out little bits and pieces of the story in there. And then uh, the other thing is that the I'm pretty sure McCloskey was very intentional about the names of the ducklings, and they suggest little character traits. And so that was the fun part: taking these illustrations and bringing them to life, and thinking about how kids and parents would relate to the story. And something he's also done is he's in musical form, it kind of harkens back to those golden age of musicals, musical theater, musical comedy. So there's a vaudeville sensibility and just kind of fun, vibrancy, uh, uh, screwball comedy nature to it all. You know, by the way, even though it has nothing to do with the play, since obviously you think Make Way for Ducklings, yes, you think McCloskey here, you think of the great Nancy Shern. Here's a little bit of Nancy Shern also on with you on Open Studio. She's obviously the sculptor reflecting on these famous ducklings of hers in the public garden. You know, there's a child in all of us, and so it's so interesting to see how mothers want to sit on the mothers, <laughs> <laughs> on Mrs. Mallard. But the children, each one of them, want to sit on each one of the ducks. And it's so interesting the way they will sit on this one, this one, this one. <laughs> and it's just a joy. I don't know what the name of the book is, but she put out a book a year or two ago with photographs of all the different ways oh, that people had dressed up from yeah. serious ones, like putting them in cages to reflect on the detentions of to, kids in, in Texas. You know, to Red Trump. Sox outfits yeah, just, and she little is bonnets a on Easter. I mean, and, and the whole thing in, in the public public garden is, is such a treasure. I mean, you just walk over 
there and they're great. And one of the things I think is so sweet about Nancy. Ducks on Parade. Thank you, Aiden. Ducks on Parade. That's and what it's called, yeah. That she created them, what, almost 30 years ago now? And she still, it's like the first time seeing people's interaction with them. She, it's still so new She's and fabulous. vibrant and fresh to her that people would respond to the work the way they have. And the, and the Wheel Life Family Theater is just another treasure in, in Boston. I mean, they do such wonderful stuff. I bet it's just... Did your kids do anything in that? Uh, I think my they kids did. did. They, they did. They did. My youngest daughter did something. Of course, I don't remember what it was. <laughs> Uh, and my both my daughters did, and I have no idea what they did either. So there you they have it. They had little it. bit parts. So let's yeah, put it that way. Exactly. They were not starring in anything, but they might have been. They might have been like you know a little tree looking at the ducklings or something like that. How long is this thing uh, at Wheelock? Bro? Yeah, people have to rush. It's only up through May twelfth. Okay, Fairview. It's Speakeasy. That's a Pulitzer Prize. Is that the Pulitzer Prize winning Fairview? Yes. This is a Pulitzer Prize yeah. winning play. Um, this sounds really clever. So I, le, le, I have to be very careful here because there are there's only a very little that I can say about this because I don't want to ruin this experience for people. So I'll try to talk around it. Um, but I'll set it up by saying it's the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winner for drama. It's also a show a lot of people have walked out of when it was staged in New York. So this Why? is in protest. You mean they were upset? Yeah. By the second half? For reasons that I, really? I, I don't really want to talk okay. about, but okay. I'll try to leave. Okay, let you me just there. guess. The well, white people walked let, out in the second half? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is a play by Jackie Siblis Drury, and it is called Fairview. And the first 20 minutes, we're, we're watching what could be construed as a sitcom, like The Cosby Show or Moesha, as some of their creators have described. You have um, a family, a black family, that is g- getting together for, for, their, for the grandmother, the matriarch's birthday party. And uh, you have kind of a tightly wound mother who wants to make her mother very happy and she wants all the food just so and everything just right and her sister arrives and as siblings do her sister needles her just a little bit her husband is is helping her out their daughter arrives and um, she's just a sweetheart and has a particular bond with her aunt and it's just a lovely scene that we're watching a lovely family it's funny it's enjoyable there's warmth and lots of love in the family and then it begins to change and this is where I don't really want to say anything more about the plot other than to say that this is a piece that Jackie Siblis Drury wrote as inspired by a surveillance and how that affects black people in particular uh, to have uh, to be surveilled and to have that intensity. She's also very mindful of the white gaze. And that is what really comes to the fore in this production. And then it has an ending that I think that no one will leave without wanting to talk about for a long time, without being... Uh, affected by for a really long time, probably maybe even for the rest of their life. Uh, And it's also taking into consideration when you have black stories that are told on stage in theater, which we have talked about on this show, is usually predominantly white audiences. I will say for the way this show ends, I was acutely aware of how many people in the audience were white, and it was most. Uh, but again, I don't want to say much more than that to um, not ex- uh, spoil the experience for anybody else who should see this show. How long is this here? Uh, this also, unfortunately, is just at the end. I believe it wraps uh, March 11th. March 11th. Um, so not a lot of time left Speak for easy it. But you know, uh, one of the stars here is a kid from Dorchester, right? Went to you know just graduated from BU, and she's one of the. One of the stars of the, in the, it, uh, yeah. the Black Family. So that's kind of neat. It's a very, very talented cast. A lot of people we've seen on the Boston area stages coming together for this. And I, I just cannot under uh, um, 
undersay how how profound this piece is. Yeah, well, um, I hate spoiler alerts because we can't really talk about why the, why people get no, so No, and I'm not trying to be glib or cute either, but it, it's I, I think the piece needs to unfold for everybody in, yeah. in very different ways. No, you're ways, right. It would I, ruin it. And so I don't want to prejudice how anybody might um, accept what's happening on the stage. Although the, I read the, the uh, spoiler and it made me more likely to see it. Yeah. I think a lot of people want to. Okay, um, so let's talk about the uh, this uh, hoops uh, little great the, leap, the great leap um, yeah. play. And I should mention that was that's being presented by um, Fairview is presented by Speakeasy Stage Company. Oh, that's right. Sorry. So the great leap is presented by Lyric Stage Company, and this is on through March nineteenth. And I found this a really compelling piece, a, r- a really rich story here. Um, it's written by Lauren Yee, and it, first we start uh, in the nineteen eighties. And in San Francisco, and there's a young, brash student named Manford, and he wants the opportunity to go to China to play basketball. So he approaches a coach who is about to take a team there to play in a friendship game in China. And then it bounces back and forth so, so that we go back to the 1970s where that coach, Saul, uh, was up against another Chinese coach, Wen Cheng, in Beijing. Uh, and the way each man approached the game, the way each man approaches each other, really speaks to the representation of our countries and what our countries bring to society and to global politics and the the dominance on the global stage. It's really individualized in these two characters. Uh, But then we flash forward again as uh, Manford does is able to go to China to play in this friendship game. Uh, 1989 is very significant because that's when Tiananmen Square is unfolding. Martial law has taken effect in China, in, in Beijing. Uh, and Manfred is also there for very personal reasons that we begin to understand. So it starts with this very global, I think, layer, and then we drill down into these characters, but it really gives us an understanding of how these countries have met each other. Uh, but also, all through the prism of basketball, and Tyler Simak, who plays Manfred, He's great with the the basketball on the court, really compelling. He's also an actor we've seen on local stages. And I just found well, they'd have to get a good basketball player to play the role, or did he practice a lot before he got there? That's I don't what know. I was thinking. I don't know how I would be. I would have to do a lot of practicing to know my lines, to know my choreography and blocking, but also to, to be facile with the basketball. But I, as I say, I found it very compelling, a very interesting story uh, on view at Lyric Stage Company. Do they have right a hoop now. on the stage, or is he doing it backstage? It's just a lot of dribbling. Dr- a lot of dribbling, yeah. okay. Because you yeah. wouldn't want to miss like a, too many shots. That would be very embarrassing. That would you. be horrible. But we see, we have seen things like that before yeah. when, when things like that are staged in theaters. And I think, my goodness, the pressure that you have to be under, especially with the circus acts, when they come to town and they drop a pin or they drop a plate or something and you see kind of this little smile come across their face. <laughs> but inside, you know, they're thinking, oh, I cannot believe that just happened. So uh, when is this thing closing? Like tonight? Uh, March 19th. <laughs> March 19th. <laughs> Nothing like giving a review like 10 minutes no, before the show well, leaves town. No. You know, before, fault, before we ask you about what you're doing in Open Studio on Friday, I, I just got a note from my uh, uh, our coworkers. You took my parking space, yep. and apparently you took my television show, too. I did. Jared is hosting yeah. Greater Boston tonight? Just, just for tonight. What is that about? <laughs> I'm just helping out and filling. You I mean, You left such giant shoes to fill. It I takes did? a team of oh. about 97 people oh. to fill in for you. Oh, then I feel a little bit better yeah. about it. Yeah. What are, you, uh, what are you doing on Open Studio? Uh, we'll have Rachel Rollins on, who is oh, just in great. Selma. 
um, and you know, from our conversation, an open studio or on Jim's show? Uh, so, yeah, this Greater is for, Boston? for Greater Boston. It's not okay. Jim's show anymore. Not Jim's show anymore. Okay. Well, what are you doing on Greater Boston? It will the always be Jim's show. show formerly known to as me. Jim's show. Okay, who do you have on again? Uh, Rachel. We have Rollins. Rachel Wallens talking about going to Selma and in the significance of that uh, for her in criminal justice. Uh, and we'll also speak with members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra behind the the. Music Festival Voices of Loss, Reckoning, and Hope to give a preview of that. Do you open the show by saying, welcome to Jim's old show? How does the show begin? Formerly exactly? known. I Formally like that. Jim's I, old show? Well, we begin with a montage of you, and then <laughs> we cut, cut to me in a little single tear dripping down my face. That's right. A and montage. what do you do on Friday night Jim on or the years. show? Well, on. we're still off the air for the oh. PBS Pledge Drive, but... Oh. But on Thursday night, if you're inclined, Thursday. and I think there are a few tickets left. Oh, yes, I read about uh, this. You're, what are you I'm doing? T- I'm talking to Fran Lebowitz at the Colonial oh. Theater. Oh, That yeah. is going to be a blast. <laughs> she is like I should have mentioned that because I read that in the Globe over the weekend. They had a bit, was it the Globe or the Times? It had a big piece the, about the her. The Boston Globe, yeah. Boston Globe, okay. And it mentioned that you were going to be interviewing she's her. Fabulous. Tell people a little bit about Fran Lebowitz before you go. She is a hot ticket, and she's going to be close to 80 by now. Well, she's well, she's in her early 70s, and, and she came onto the scene as well. What, like a 19 or 20 year old writing for Andy Warhol and in Interview Magazine and she had two great books thin books that were combined into the Fran Lebowitz Reader and then this was in the 1980s or 90s yeah. and then she had not a writer's block but a writer's blockade as she describes it and hasn't written any, anything since but of course <laughs> her, her amazing wit and her capacity for conversation and to tackle anything because she's such a voracious reader makes her great Did she do that two part thing with the Martin Scorsese. That was brilliant. That was unbelievably great. And very crabby. Is she hosting my (laughs) damn show too, or what's the deal? I think we're in negotiations. Okay, fine. Jared, good luck with all your uh, endeavors. Thank Thank you very much. much. Uh, We've been speaking with GBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen, Open Studios, not on this week, but Thursday, where is it going to be? Colonial. Colonial Theater. You can catch him interviewing uh, Fran Lieberwitz, and that will be a fun night. Thank you very much, Jared. Thank you. Coming up, The Everett School Committee just voted not to renew the contract of a highly regarded superintendent of schools after tensions rose between her and the mayor of Everett. Is this just the latest in a long laundry list of discrimination and retribution uh, charges in the city hall or not? GBH reporter Liz Nishas joins us to discuss. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're joined now by GBH reporter Liz Nislaus, who's been covering the latest turmoil in Everett, where the school committee just voted to fire their superintendent of schools after years, or not renew her contract, after years of tension between her and the mayor. Superintendent Priya Taliani alleged blatant and overt acts of discrimination and retaliation, alleging that the mayor and his allies on the school committee were trying to oust her. This is in a complaint she filed last year. And then the failure to renew her contract, the vote not to renew her contract, happened just a couple of nights ago, covered by our colleague Liz Nislaus. Liz, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jim. It's nice to be on your show. Well, very heard. nicely put. Yeah. Yes. So th- there's quite a history here. I know you know about it, Liz. Jim knows about it. So you tell us the history, and Jim can fill in the blanks because he's been on this story as well. 
So I think to tell the history of Everett, you got to go a little bit into the demographics and the history just very so too, quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the demographics. So this has happened in a lot of cities. It's gone from a majority white city to a majority non-white city. Um, you know, people point to roughly 1999 as the year that things really changed. If you look at the high school class then, that was when you started to see um, many more immigrants. Um, a lot of people were moving into Everett. It's very inexpensive. It was a very inexpensive place to live. Um, so what's happened is um, the two-thirds of the residents are now non-white um, many Hispanic, Latino. Uh, Twenty years ago, only about 25 percent of the city was non-white. So fast forward till now, you have majority non-white, but you still have government. The structures of government are held by whites. Now, can I just throw a few facts in here until we get to the superintendent battle in a second? We had Gurley Adrian, who was then a city councilor right. on the show, who was the first black city councilor maybe a year ago or so who is claiming that she was uh, discriminated against by the mayor at city council meetings where the he Zoom accused meetings. her of doing certain things right, on right, Zoom. She right. wanted to attend by Zoom right. because of the pandemic. He had her screen shut off from time to time. She ultimately ran against him and she lost in the, in the mayoral race in the succeeding uh, round. Yes, and she was asked to resign because she wouldn't yes, she show was. up for meetings during physically the pandemic. Shocked. Yeah, She wouldn't physically show up. She said she had somebody immunocompromised in her house. Yeah. And that, by the way, that video of that city council meeting just disappeared. So, But that the point about that is that that was really the first moment that all these issues in Everett surfaced and became really public. So that was the first one. Then you had another issue with a racist meme sent around by Anthony DiPiro, a member of the city council, a relative. Who's the, the niece, uh, the son of the yeah, mayor's cousin. A, rel- a relationship there. Yeah. So he did not resign. That was shared among city council well, wait, members. Let's not rush through that. Yeah. He is talking to, there's a tape that appeared of this, to Deanna Devney, who That's is the, the third chief of staff. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Well, yeah. oh, the third incident. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where she says... Uh, because we want some uh, people of color at our public meetings, can you bring one of your dark friends? Yes. She uh, uh, says, and they go back and forth on this. Uh, they originally refused to resign. And I have to say, you got to credit, at least in my opinion, to Maura Healy. We had her on the show. And I know, I remember like it was yesterday, the question to her was, she was then the attorney general, you know, every leader in Massachusetts doesn't miss an opportunity to call out racism around the world, white supremacy in the United States, in the White House. But they're not willing to call it out a couple of miles down the road in Everett, at which point we said, what should happen to Counselor DePiro, who refused to resign? She said he should resign immediately. And either the next day or the day after that, he, he was gone. and the chief of staff to the mayor were gone. That silence that you mentioned, that speaks volumes, and that is still the issue today. So the girly Adrian, the racist meme, the racist conversation, those three incidents were the things that really pushed into the public discussion in Everett racism. And before we get to the, the thing that you're covering immediately, this, this back and forth with the superintendent that ultimately led to the failure to renew her contract by, I think, a six to four vote with the mayor voting in the uh, in, not to renew. Uh, Rachel Rollins also decided as the U.S. attorney to take a look into this. And I, I talked to her about it a little bit on Greater Boston uh, from time to time. 
But uh, and we called her office today. We weren't able to get a, a response. And quickly please enough ask for the her show. spokesperson to call me back. Okay, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, in fairness, in our situation, we didn't call her till this morning. So it, well, we, I've been calling for a while. Oh, you I have? Will, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't. So the bottom line is, we don't know what the status well, of her investigation we do. is. Oh, we, we do. We do from from people who don't wish wish to be identified because th- these things do have to remain somewhat confidential so that they can work properly. So what do we know? I didn't we know, know that it's still ongoing. Oh, we do. We know they have requested a lot of emails that they have interviewed in the past, members of the school committee. Uh, they were maybe a bit more focused on the prior school superintendent, the one you are probably more familiar with. Um, but Who went to jail? You talking about the who who went to jail? So we have to then explain this story. This is Frederick Forestier, who uh-huh. is the predecessor to the current school superintendent. Um, he was there for thirty years, and uh, three very brave women came forward and complained that he had uh, sexually assaulted them. And he was pressured to resign. He was convicted on one count. Mm -hmm. He pleaded guilty to two others. He is currently out awaiting. He's appealing his conviction. So he is currently out. Even his release has raised uh, has raised the uh, anger of a lot of community members. Now, listen, Nislas, the superintendent that has just whose contract has just been voted not to be renewed. kind of got rave reviews from what I understand. She got a big award from uh, people in education in Massachusetts. She's She got one of the top awards that the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents gives out. She it, This was just last year in 22, 2022 that she was awarded. Um, and her appraisals, the appraisals, the performance reviews that the school committee members submit, they were generally positive, some not, you know, some comments, but nothing truly negative, even from the mayor. And I can recount, you know, the small details. But in 2022, he and this is months after she the superintendent filed a discrimination complaint in 2022. She's a woman of color, we should say. She is a woman of Indian origin. She's an American. She's of Indian origin. And she had filed a discrimination complaint, which we can talk about. But in 2022, the mayor did not submit an appraisal. Blank, nothing. He didn't put anything into the record, and he did not even vote on, they do a collective appraisal as a school committee. And didn't another woman of color, who's one of her uh, One of her deputies, that's correct. Also the a woman of color, yes. and she also alleged... She dis- has filed a discrimination complaint. Okay, also. so we have a lot of discrimination complaints coming we from do. women of color yeah, yeah. in Everett. And and we also have um, in, in stories such as the long Boston Magazine uh, piece about uh, Everett, where the... Uh, the, the local uh, denizen of the Everett newspaper there, the small Everett newspaper, calls the mayor DeMario, DeMaria, excuse me, kickback Carlo. It talks about kind of retaliation against people who stand up against him in the town of Everett. He's been there for, what, tw- how many years? And get, I didn't know this. Did He's in his this? sixth term. Sixth term. Yeah. Listen to this. He's paid more than any mayor in Massachusetts, he makes two hundred and thirty-six thousand six hundred and forty-seven dollars. Yeah, well, we could go on about that. He had an let's extra. say oh, longevity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. want to mention that because people that stays in people's heads. Yeah, and the longe- the uh, longevity bonus 
of ten grand for every yeah, year that, he survives. That's a whole dispute. We could go down that road. I want to say one thing though about the um, the what you just mentioned. There mm-hmm. is a libel suit against that particular journalist. Yes, um, for a satirical piece which was not marked well, as satire. I'm gonna I'm Let's gonna I'm gonna stand to the side of okay. that one. But I want to get back to the point of uh, the superintendent's qualifications. Yep. It it was extremely it was extremely unusual that the head of the estate association, the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents, Tom Scott. Tom Scott, that he stepped out. He apparently, you know, he said lobbied behind closed doors probably, but for the first time stepped out publicly and he called this an injustice. This was before the vote. And he said, I just can't stand by. We can tell a lot, and this is a quote, we can tell a lot about the competency skills she has. We can also know by simply reading the newspaper just how politicized the situation has become. So the question comes down to, are we making a decision based on politics or are we making a decision based on the best interests of the kids? And you heard that over and over from parents and students that pleaded in that school committee meeting before the vote. We have yeah. some, actually, we yeah. have some of that testimony. Here are a couple of the voices from the Everett community in support of the superintendent. This is Monday night. This is resident Janice Lark and teacher Shane McNally in that order. The guy in the corner office does not want her here. We all know that. Is it because her skin is brown? Is it because she's female? Is it because she's smart? What is it? As I see it, you have two choices. You have racism or anti-racism. You can use students, uh, families, and educators as pawns in your own internal squabbles, or you can empower them. That was the teacher, Shane McNally. Dan, what were the the vote was six to four? Am I right about that? The vote was six to four, six against. What were the arguments, uh, public arguments made by the uh, any of the six? uh, That's that's an excellent question. There really was very little. The mayor did not speak. Two other opponents did not speak. The three who did, they all cited intimidation by the public. They complained about rumors that had been spread about them, that they were taking jobs or favors in exchange for their votes. They spoke directly from the to mayor. The, from the mayor. They denied all of that. Um, but they did. They could not answer the question, what's wrong with the record? You all gave her proficient, I think, all the naysayers, proficient reviews. What is wrong with this candidate? Why are you voting against her? And the the closest we got, one, one woman talked about, oh, teachers feel like they can't speak out. There is an incredible irony in that. She said, I'm running into people in the stores and the teachers say they, they can't speak out. They feel harassed. You know about the previous school superintendent If anything was said about him, he was ruling with an iron fist. People were terrified. This woman, you hear nothing but the current school superintendent. You only hear she is open. She wants to listen. So it just didn't square. You know what's really obviously so sad about this, too, is that this previous superintendent obviously was was not a role model for what we know about the allegations and the uh, guilty plea he made. We've seen in Boston how turnover in superintendents really hurts the system and how when Boston schools have functioned the best, it's when they've had superintendents for a longer time. So here you get somebody that's seen like as a superstar. She comes in, she gets these proficient reviews, and she seems to be well-liked by a good chunk of the people. The schools are predominantly kids of color, are they not? They are. And she's a person of color. So the the bottom line is that this is going to hurt the kids, because what superintendent 
that's of that quality is going to come in to this mess. Well, a very, very powerful comment made just before the vote by a teacher who has sat across the table from Tahiliani in union votes literally said, on the line is the future of the city. That's what's on the line with this vote. If you let her go tonight, you will not see another qualified candidate come across your table again. So... Is there anything to be done about this, or is this just a done deal, and that's the end, and this superintendent is going well, to leave? Well, why can't I ask the same question that I asked the, these public officials, and we asked on our show and on my television show then, why is there, when you have incident after incident after incident, the girly uh, Adrian situation with the city councilor, the meme you described, this, how about a couple of your dark friends, again, a city councilor who's related to the mayor, and his chief of staff, or at least his head of governmental affairs, whatever it is. And then the fourth incident being this, there's a pattern that develops, it seems to me. And I still wonder why. And again, Rachel Rollins apparently is involved in a an investigation. Why is there not, why don't we hear more from state leaders about what's going on in this city of Everett? Do you have an analysis or a theory as to why there is virtual silence? I can't. I mean... It's just speculation, really. The mayor has been in that spot for six terms. He has a lot of connections. I, I, you know, it's politics. That's what people in Everett say. It's politics. I cannot explain the silence, though. I really can't. Yeah. And so what what is is the superintendent? First of all, her contract, I, it does, she doesn't terminate immediately. Until June, I believe, of uh, next year. And what's the status of uh, either her or her deputy's uh, discrimination complaints that were filed? I assume with that Mass Commission Against Discrimination. So we may hear soon about Tahiliani's suit. It was with the uh, MCAD MC- M- right, or something? MCAD, where it has yeah. to be. This is a procedural thing. It has to start there first. It was closed, which means it can now go to Supreme your court, and we're going to hear soon, I think. So we don't know about... the specifics of her allegations? Or we do. do we we, we do. do. I mean, there's plenty of allegations. She talks about racism, sexism, harassment. She gets very specific in there. And that was January of 2022. Ra- and she talked about her- sexism. F- from whom? From the mayor, from members of the school committee. The, the, the complaint was directed to the city of Everett, the mayor, and the school committee. But she specifically names in her complaint two members uh, of the school committee, the mayor, who is now, and we can talk about that, a, a voting member on the school committee and another school committee member. But she also said in her complaint they were trying to oust her from, from and, and, and I guess, so apparently that did come to pass. But she also said that as she began, and she had state grants to diversify the teaching pool, but she was also diversifying what was an entirely white school administration. So that's gone from 100% white to about 80% white, the school administrators, those people at the top. So she said as she was doing that, the mayor came to her in anger and said, you are a racist. You don't hire any white people. You, you hate whites. I mean, she literally put that in her complaint. You can find it in the complaint. By the way, you know, uh, this will be uncomfortable for you because I want to praise the relentlessness with which you've pursued the story here. And Stephanie Ebert from The Globe to the two of you have really been extraordinary. Did they, Am I not right? Didn't you report in sometime last year, didn't they pick a 
diversity officer or some such yes. thing? Yes, they did. What and is he or she doing? That is a tough one. Um, she did not respond to my request for comment. That's unbelievable. Now, I will say this, and this, this, is, this is a real tough one to explain. Having interviewed her so many times, interviewed people around her who know her, um, it, she sees it as being very nuanced in her work. She is caught, no doubt, no doubt, she is caught between a rock and a hard place. And her job is to try to change what she calls the racist narrative. She said there's a dangerous narrative that Everett is racist. And I think that feeds on itself, that gets people more angry. But what seems apparent is that in Everett, it is the institutions that have the problem. It is institutional racism, and it is not about a population, a community that's generally racist. When you go to rallies when you talk to people on the street. Of course, there's going to be incidents of racism in the community, but the problem is institutional in Everett. Isn't there another demonstration coming up? Is it today? Or? Um, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. When. So uh, you'll stay on top of this, and we hope you'll come talk to us again, too. This is really important. And you know, if we were Boston, I think it'd be front-page news every single day, and it's just a mile or so over in a town with a casino, and we barely talk about it but and there's a lot, lot more to talk about thank you liz thanks for your reporting and thanks yeah. for your time today we really appreciate it thank you thanks We're, so much we've been speaking with liz nieslaw she's a reporter for gbh news and she's been covering the situation everett thank you very much for being with us liz up next simon montgomery joins us to tell us about swimming with whales simon montgomery is another another edition of afternoon zoo you're listening to boston public radio 89.7 gbh Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mardrigan and Jim Bradley. We're joined now by naturalist, author, and newly minted swimmer with whales, Simon Montgomery. Sai's just back from a trip to the Dominican Republic where she swam with humpback whales. Looking those massive beings right in the eye here to tell us about it is Simon Montgomery. Hey, Sai. Hey, Jim. <laughs> Hello, Simon Montgomery. Hi, Marjorie. So I was listening last, uh, reading last night, rather, uh, notes from our colleague uh, Zoe Matthews' conversation with you about swimming in these whales, with these whales, and you said it makes your life, your tiny but precious life, mm-hmm. be connected to this hugeness. It's soul expanding, enveloping, life changing. Uh, you didn't uh, necessarily pitch this as a story, but you wanted it in your soul. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, man. So <laughs> well, tell us more, please. How did this happen? 
Oh my gosh. Well, this was it was an epic journey and my my friend, the wildlife artist Rosemary Conroy, has been telling me for years she's been on this trip four other times and has been inviting me along ever since her first trip. Um I I love going on whale watches. We love seeing the, the animals breach and spy hop and just seeing the top of their beautiful backs rise out of the ocean you get this you know this 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 feeling of something huge hidden beneath the surface and i i had longed to go with her but i i just couldn't see any way that i could do it with my schedule until i signed up for it last summer before i knew that my schedule would once again overwhelm me but by then <laughs> i was committed and <sighs> to look in the face of one of these amazing creatures in the immensity of the ocean, in their liquid environment. For, for me, this little tiny speck of a critter, and of course I love my one little wild and precious life, but for me to be able to look at someone like that in their environment just seemed to me like a, a tonic for my soul. And even though I didn't have a book or an assignment or a deadline, I just wanted that to be part of my heart for the rest of my life. And it was a good decision. So describe the scene a little bit more. I mean, swim with, look into their eyes. How close were you? Uh, You know, fill in some blanks, Cy Montgomery. Sure, sure. Well, um, we, we start out the journey at Puerto Plata um, uh, in Dominican Republic, which is two-thirds of um, the, the island that also contains Haiti. Um, we have a about seven-hour crossing of everyone being very seasick for an entire day. In fact, our trip was delayed a day because the waves were even higher the day really? before. So then you get there on your 240-foot boat, and there on the boat are two smaller skiffs, little tenders. There's only three boats allowed in this protected area, which is the, it has the densest concentration of humpback whales during the breeding season in the entire North Atlantic. There's between 3,000 and 5,000 yeah, whales amazing. or more there, which is pretty spectacular. And over this kind of this big um, coral bed where the waters are more shallow, the whales find sanctuary. So the people on our boat, there were only 19 guests, um, split up into kind of two teams, and they go out in the little skiffs, and the whale spotters look for whales. We get to watch them, you know, topside. There's tons of action. There's darling little infant whales who are just a month old and they're sometimes they're throwing a tantrum sometimes they're just <laughs> jumping around you see their big white wings and we saw one male who was apparently standing on his head for five minutes waving his tail in the air like he was hailing a cab oh. but, what, but and why you know what are they doing we found um one whale right underneath us who was standing on his head singing. But what we wanted in order to get in the water with them was to find whales who were calm, who were resting. They don't sleep as we do. They only sleep 
part of their brain at a time because they are conscious breathers. Mm-hmm. And the outfit I went with was called Conscious Breath Adventures. Whales have to think about every single breath they take. They can't do it when they're asleep like we do. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so it's a good name for the outfit because they also want us to be conscious of these very conscious creatures and respectful. So you, you, you're out on your little skiff and you think you see, you see a whale go down. And if he, he or she goes down and stays down for a little bit of time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then comes up and then dives down again, they might be sort of taking a nap, but they're not asleep. And you don't want to creep up on them, but you also don't want to noisily splash into their lives. So the, uh, one, of, one of the kind of spotters goes overboard, looks, sees if the whale or whales are, are feeling calm. You don't want to be there when, like a baby's having a tantrum. You don't want to be there when a bunch of rowdy males are pursuing a female, because these are 40-ton animals who weigh as much as a, a loaded logging truck. And the babies are as long as a school bus. They weigh a ton and a half the minute they're born. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, you don't want to mess, you don't want to mess with them, and you don't want to disturb them. So, if all is calm... They say, come on in, and you slide into the water. Now, when I say slide in the water, we were there when it was very choppy. And although we were trying not to splash, the waves were pretty high. And they were thrashing around so much, the waves, that they were like knocking my mask off my face, and, which was flooding, which was disturbing. And when you look to your side, you wanted to stay with your group because, you know, now you're swimming out to the whale. You don't want your big boat you know, your little skiff, but you don't want the the skiff to be too close to the whale. So you're swimming for a little bit together as quietly as you possibly can. And then when you get over the whale, you just hang in the water and you put your face in the water. And below you, you can see the whales in their element. And time takes on a totally different feel you know, just just the weight of the water on your body and the, the way whales move because they're moving in a liquid medium because they're so huge, you've just entered another dimension. It feels completely different. And I would say it feels like a dream, except which is the dream and which is reality? We are the <laughs> terrestrial things Someone and we Rod live Serling. on this tiny portion of the earth. But they... You know, they have been um, in the seas, which is by far the largest habitat on the planet. It covers more of the surface of of the planet, but also, you know, it goes deep, deep, deep. And live animals, most live animals live in the ocean, not. So, you know, our experience in the world is just a tiny little sliver of reality. And so in a way, this altered reality felt like, oh, my gosh, I've been sleepwalking all my life. Did they see you when you saw oh, yeah. them? They did. Oh, yes. So they they will look at you. I mean, you can see them glance at oh, you. My God. And what was the, the very last um, experience that, that we had with the whales, and this was after, you know, the seasick crossing. This is after the time when the waves were so choppy, they were knocking my mask off my face. This is after I and seven other people were sick enough on this trip from various problems that we missed part of a dive. This is the very last day of our trip. Um, There was a mother 
and a month and a half year old baby and a male escort. And the escort is not necessarily the, the dad of the baby, but he wants to mate with the female. He's not going to hurt the baby. He's going to escort her and try to keep away challengers. Well, this guy, this male, was very distinctive, and we could see plainly he had enormous scars on his body. Part of his pectoral fin, his arm, had been amputated, and there was a huge scar across his, his dorsal side. Because he had been entangled? Exactly. That's the only thing that would have produced that kind of scar. And the only way he could have gotten out of that much entanglement is if humans had helped him. So he was real chill with us. And we know why. He recognized we belonged to the tribe of Critter that helped him. Do you believe that, Cy? Do you believe that? Oh, absolutely. There's so many cases of animals, particularly you know, whales who are so smart with their enormous brains and their long lifespans and their, their songs, which contain elements of music and language. They're smart critters. They live a long time. And there's adaptive value in remembering who your friends are. And there's many cases in which whales have been freed by people who've been specially trained to still risk their lives to uh-huh. disentangle a whale. And the whale gets freed, swims away joyously, makes a turn, comes back, and looks right in the face oh of the people who help them. And sometimes, if by that time the people are on the boat, the whale will breach to leap up in the sky just to show thank you. And that's not just whales that do that. I know of giant manta rays that have done that. I, I know of plenty of animals, even turtles, who will do that when you release them after they've been at the turtle hospital. Sai, I have a question. Since whales are enormous, what are you supposed to do if the whale suddenly starts making its way to the surface? Say your prayers. Yeah. I mean, oh, there well, is a danger there, right? Yeah, they do not want to hurt you. And this is so amazing. Um, I mentioned, I think last time we were talking, this this fabulous book by Tom Mustill called How to Speak Whale. And he also went on the, the exact same trip that I just got back from. He was in a kayak when a whale breached, and it was filmed by other people on their, their cell phones. It appeared that the whale landed on top of his kayak. But he did not die because the whale midair made a course correction. And did not kill him. Wow. Oh, my God. You know, and, you know, we can't know what was in the mind of the whale. But the fact is, a 40-ton whale did not kill this person in the little tiny kayak. Did it hit and the kayak or, and not the – anyway? It, it did hit, like, the edge of the kayak. So maybe – A 40-ton whale. Yeah. So maybe it, it was trying to avoid landing on something, perhaps. Well, that's what she's suggesting. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know, I'm you've sure. mentioned whale song a couple of times. I know some sound was collected. I don't know if it was by you or one of your colleagues. It was me, yeah. Oh, so here's some whale song that you captured during your recent trip. It's about 20 seconds. Just listen. about as haunting as it gets. Is that one whale or more than one whale? Doesn't it sound like it's like a whole ton of whales? It's one guy. It's and what was it, and what was it saying or what was it intending to say? How you doing, Cy? Si? Good to see you. How are things in Massachusetts? No, I'm serious. Do you know? Do you know? 
there's theories about it. Um, like what? In, well, in, in 1970, when Songs of the Humpback Whale came out, it was noticed by Roger Payne and his wife, Katie, then wife, uh, Katie Payne, a musicologist, that mm-hmm. whales are actually singing, that, that these are songs with like rhymes to them. Um, with choruses to them, and only the males sing. So at first it was thought that they sing to attract females. But if you look, if you hang out, you notice that females do not show up. And you also notice that these songs change every year and that every male whale who sings is singing the exact same song. So everyone sings the same song, even though it changes every year. So what could they be saying? My money is on the idea that they are talking about the journey. Did you take the BQE? It was so bad. <laughs> up. I'm going to take, you know, so you don't go through the Sumner Tunnel. I, I, I would bet it's something like that. Why Basically, does... when you see who comes, females don't come, but other males might come. And when they do, the singer usually shuts up, maybe because that guy already knows the directions. He's already there. Why does the song, why does the song change every year? I'd never heard that before. Why does, why does it change? Well, they don't know because they're not sure what they're saying. But I'm sure that aspects of their migration changes every year, and that would make sense oh. to have a similar but slightly changing uh, set of directions that everyone needs to know by heart. You know, Sam Montgomery, maybe you've got a special deal being who you are, but if a regular person wanted to do this, can they just call up and how much does it cost or do they have to go through training or what's the procedure? No, you can totally just call up. It costs a ton of money, like $7,000. It's a ton of money, but it is it is so worth it. And who was on this trip with me? i got to tell you. My my friend was has been on it five times, and she's an artist. You don't make that much money as an artist, but she loves it that much. There were 19 people. Ten people were repeat offenders who were coming wow. back for another trip. One lady had been on it. She's actually a whale researcher. She's been on it 40 times, and three of the people who were on it, guess what they did for a living when they weren't on vacation swimming what? with whales? They, they were whale tour operators. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And is this is this just in the Dominican Republic or are there other places where people well, go? Well, that's where the huge concentration of humpbacks is. Yeah, yeah, but I wonder That is in the North Atlantic. Yeah. There are other there are other outfits and other places you can you can go. The thing is though, um I went with Conscious Breath Adventures because the Dominican has a very strict policy of only allowing three boats out there. There's only a few hundred people a year allowed to go. And also, getting there is somewhat arduous. Um, we had particularly bad weather, but, you know, it's, it's a big investment of, of time. So you're getting people who are very serious about it. But they do not allow scuba because bubbles mean something to humpbacks. They hunt using um, bubbles. They also make bubble curtains for, like, privacy curtains between the males and, and the, the, the females when the males want to wall off their chosen lady from Wait a minute. other challengers. Wait, wait, explain the curtains. Oh, they blow, they blow these curtains of bubbles. Wow. Um, to kind of say, keep out, this lady is mine. Wow. So that's why you don't want to scuba dive with them. They only last they, a few seconds, though, bubbles, don't they, or don't, do they? Well, if you're a scuba diver, every time you breathe, you're making a whole bunch of bubbles go But I mean the whale's bubbles. 
Oh, well, when you let loose your bubbles, they rise. Oh, okay. And so they form a whole curtain. And they also can make a net out of bubbles. Wow. Um, and whales do this. They, they'll make it like a fishing net, but it's, it's really just bubbles. And it concentrates their prey in a way that they can just kind of swim through it and, and nosh out, which is pretty cool. These guys are baling feeders, so they're, they're eating plankton and small fish. So it's it's different from the the toothed whales like uh, dolphins and um, sperm whales and stuff like that. So they have a different hunting method. But you don't want to mess with them by making a whole lot of bubbles. And I've seen in other areas that there are swim with whale programs that have been criticized for bothering the whales. And you know you don't want to bother you don't want to bother a whale, particularly these darling little infants who have just appeared on the planet and you can see them figuring out like oh this is this is my pectoral fin look what it does wow look at my tail it's just like puppies you know when they chase their tails and um they're just discovering their way about the world so do you have a theory on why that one whale was standing on its head for five minutes boy I really don't know what he was doing. I mean, maybe he was just being a gymnast and standing on his his head the same reason, you know, a, a teenage girl might want to, or a teenage boy want wants to be a gymnast that day. I have no idea, particularly since mostly other whales aren't seeing his tail. We were seeing his tail. You so know, it might have just felt good. You know, Sai, uh, one of the great... Uh, parts of having you on, I assume listeners would agree, is you always have this this feeling of wonder about your intersection with the you know the non-human animal. But I have to say, this is like ramped up even higher. Was this like a life-changing thing for you? Do you think? Yes, and I think what it was about for me was immensity. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're in the immensity of the sea. We were 75 miles from any landmass, so you saw nothing but sea. And out of the immensity of our planet comes leviathans. Yeah. And that hugeness um, just felt so holy. And to be part of that made my soul expand. Listen to this from Karen in Wittensville. I want to be friends Whitensville. with... Whitensville. excuse me. I want to be friends with Cy Montgomery and her friends. None of my friends have invited me to swim <laughs> with whales. I love Cy and her book. She has the best adventures. She's living the good life, says Karen. And this is from Jenna in Rochester. She says, when I was a little girl, I was on my grandfather's boat, which was fairly small, only about 25 feet, and we were surrounded by multiple humpback whales as they were creating those bubble uh, curtains, rings, whatever they are, bubble rings, she calls it, that, that you were just talking about. And they just peaceably let us go on our way. Wow. Yeah. Well, Karen and Jenna, I want to be your friend, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're glad we're your friends, Sai. Sai, that was fabulous. Thank you very much, Sai. I'm so. Congratulations I think you're going to do this again. You're going to do this again. Well, if I if I see another seventy five hundred dollars, I think that's where it's going to go. Sai, <laughs> <laughs> so. great to talk to you. Thank as you always. so thanks much, Sai. Oh, thanks for letting me share that. Yeah. That was with great. You Just great. Sai Montgomery is a journalist, naturalist, BPR contributor. Our listeners love her. I get all these wonderful uh, texts directed at her. Her latest book 
is The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty, which is also a very a soul-expanding book. Coming up, I'm going to open the lines. We've talked to you before about comfort foods. What's your favorite comfort TV show? Are you looping Seinfeld at night until your brain melts and you finally stop, can't stop thinking about the horrors of the day? Or do you opt for something a little more, say, grisly, like Law & Order SVU, perhaps? We stole this from a story in The Globe about uh, uh, couples not wanting to watch the same things on TV. We're going to talk about that. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie Egan and Jim Bradley. In a misconduct, uh, that's a name, right? Misconduct, yes. right. Misconduct column today in the Globe. A woman asked for advice. Why is her partner watching the same damn TV show over and over and over again? She writes that he used to be so adventurous with his watching habits, his viewing habits, but things have changed. Well, perhaps we've all been there. After the White Lotuses and the mayor of East Towns, what are we left with but the Seinfelds and the offices of our everyday mundane lives? And the misconduct says, what's so bad about it anyway? Returning to something predictable and safe after a couple of years of, I don't know, tension and trauma for so many people. So we're going to talk to you about for the rest of the show, as Marjorie said, we've talked to you a lot of times about comfort food. We want to know what's your comfort TV? What's your comfort TV show and most importantly, I want to find out why Marjorie's is Law & Order SVU, <laughs> which it is. That's what she said this morning in our pre-show meeting. 877-301-8970. How do you define, you did say that, a comfort show to you means what? I mean, misconduct was basically well, saying this is his comfort place and he, he finds solace there. What's with I, you? I guess I, I get why people want to watch Seinfeld over and over again or The Office over and over again because they're funny and they're entertaining. I can't defend myself. Um, I'm not Warner, criticizing you. SVU, but, you know, I'm, I'm with John Mulaney, the great comedian, who talked about how it, they run them over and over. You know, you can start watching this run over and over on yeah, certain no, stations yeah. all day long. And you can find, much to your horror, that you've spent like four or five hours on a sunny day uh, watching uh, Law & Order SVU. But here's uh, John Mulaney talking about this in his comedy special, New in Town, talking about Law & Order SVU. You should watch a little program called Law & Order Special Victims Unit. <laughs> yeah. A show that I love because on that show, you can say the grossest things you've ever heard in your life. No, you can't say, like, the F word. You can't say that on Special Victims Unit. But people walk around on SVU going, like, looks like the victim had anal contusions. <laughs> Yo, looks like we found semen and fecal matter in the victim's ear canal. Those are two real things that I heard on Law & Order SVU at 3 in the afternoon. And that's okay. why it's Marjorie's it's, comfort it's, television it's show. But I think the thing is, it's, it's always the same. At the beginning, there's the crime. Then they go to the commercial. Then you have the suspects, the initial suspects, and you go to the commercial. Then you find the flaws in the suspects. Uh, you know, th th they have alibis or something mm -hmm. doesn't work out. The detectors are always great. And then, of course, you go to court, and then it wraps up by the end of the hour. You know who did it. You know the sentence. They're going to pay for the crime. Crime does not pay. I guess that's it. What's so yours? The, wait a second. Is it the predictable format that – 
Well, it's that they run, it, it, they keep running one. It's like when you watch Netflix, you know, it says five seconds, the next yeah. show appears, and of course, all of a sudden, then it appears, and you have to watch it. It's the same thing with Law and Order. And you don't have to think kind the of thing? The regular Law and Order does the same thing. Well, if you're cooking, or you're just, it's a crummy day out, and you're sitting in your house Law watching TV, SVU. all of a sudden, you can find you've wasted hours you'll never get back in your life. Now, what's your favorite? Well, I comfort? first want to say, because I was critical of you this morning, had I known that they talked about anal contusions, I would have, I would have understood it's terrible. It's about how comforting it would be. Being, it's, it's, it's about terrible things with children. So it's really, I don't know why I watch it, because certainly I don't want terrible things. Well, you know what I children. watch, and, I can't, and it is my comfort viewing, but if you say to me after I tell you what it is, you're going to say, why is that comforting? I have no idea. I watch ninety percent of my television watching. I've told you, Scandi Noir, or Nordic Noir. It's these That's dark. That's I know, but it doesn't. Murders. They don't follow the same sort of predictable, easy format where you don't have to think mm-hmm. like a Law and Order SVU. So I can't explain. But that's what I would no, you can revert guess to. Who the killer is? Maybe you can, SVU. but you, but it, it, yeah, and yeah, and so it's sort of my default thing. Sort of like this guy whose uh, partner. Wrote misconduct. Why does he keep? I, I keep watching. I don't watch anything. I should be clear here. Not that anybody really needs to know this. Other than The Sopranos, I don't think I've ever watched a, a television show intentionally a second time. But I watch the same sort of TV shows all the time because it does give me great comfort. I don't understand why. So we want to know what your comfort TV is. Had your partner written to misconduct, misconduct would have defended your watching of whatever it is that you're about to tell us in a couple of seconds. Eight seven seven three zero one. Let's start in Hyde Park with Jen. Welcome, Jen. How are you? Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was just going to say that I've watched uh, the show Better Things all of the seasons multiple times, and I'll put it on again once in a while just because it's so relatable. It's about this mom in midlife, whatever, and dealing with her kids. And if I'm having a stressful day, it just even if I've already seen the episode, it makes me laugh. And Mm. the other thing I'll just say, agreeing with Marjorie, is that when I want to zone out, even to go to sleep, it sounds totally weird, but I'll just listen to Dateline. Oh. And it's, <laughs> it's just so relaxing. I don't know if it's their voices and the way they tell the story, and it's like they're just, it's strange, but it like I can go to sleep to that. But isn't that, isn't that, Jen, isn't Dateline full of serial killers and horrible things too? I think it is, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, but, but that's comforting. Their voices—they're so like nice and calm, and I don't know the way they tell the stories, and you know the format. So there's something about it that's relaxing. I don't know why. Well, Jen, to each his own. Jen, thank you kindly for your call. We appreciate it. Okay, Sheila and Lowell says Law and Order reruns are the best set it is in difficult times. You can recite the dialogue and spot the big stars when they were 21 years old. Uh, somebody else says my a Chris from Jamestown. My current TV comfort show is reruns of Frasier. I didn't watch it in the 90s, and there are 11 seasons to enjoy. West Wing, West Wing, West Wing. A lot of um, West Wings yeah, up here, by the way. Yeah, somebody else. You know something? I have never watched the West Wing. You want to know something? I was about to say, I thought I was the only yeah. person of my political persuasion who's never watched it. Should, you know I why? Because Aaron it. Sorkin, in my opinion, I talk about who am I to criticize, overwrites all of his stuff. I'm not a big Aaron Sorkin fan. Derry Girls. I started that. That's, I should go back to that. That's about these uh, teenage girls in Ireland, and it's a funny show. Uh, somebody said that. Let's go to Lisa in Nashua, New Hampshire. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Hey. Um, Hi. So I go to bed every night with Angela Lansbury watching Murder, She Wrote. I could totally oh, yeah. get that. Go yeah. ahead. And like, as I said to your screener, don't judge me, but, you know, 
20, like you said, Marjorie, 20 past the hour, there's a dead guy. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, oh, no, break the commercial, you know, but, um, it's, it's, but recently I'm trying to, I'm trying to break up a little bit with, with Marjorie, with Jessica Fletcher, but I do, I've been rewatching Veep on yep. HBO. And That's it, a good one. It's so foul, it's so foul, but it's so funny. And so, yeah, that's my new thing. Veep's one of the funniest shows. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, one of the funniest shows of all time. Lisa, that was a great call. Thank you kindly. We appreciate it. Donovan Hudson says only three shows to rewatch. Number one is Veep. Number two is Succession. Number three is Veep. Veep. Well, I think that caller would agree. 877-301-8970. Is there a second show for you besides Law & Order SVU or no? You like comedy, don't you? Hello? Yeah, well, I, um, I, I'm trying to think of one that I like. I mean, I do like Seinfeld. I love mm. The Office. I watch The Office all the time with my kids. I like somebody else is saying this. I think well, the next person that's calling is going to say the show that I often watch. Oh, well, let's Sherry talk from to Boston. The person. Hi, hey, Sherry. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. How are you? We're excellent. Great. Thank you for asking. I watch my comfort shows are Abbott Elementary. Yes. That's a, that's a riot. It is a riot, <laughs> And the good doctor, and Will Trent. What? What Will Trent? I don't know that. What is it? Will Trent? (laughs) No. I think we're about to be humiliated. You have to watch it and then report on it so that I can hear you report on it another time. It's a police procedural, is what I just I looked it up. I didn't know. Yes, it is, and he is a detective in the police department. But they, him and his, one of his partners have been through like a rough childhood, or they've known each other since childhood. Yeah. But the way he detects the, um, you know, the the events that he's in, he's just really good. It's really, really good acting. You, you know, it. we're remi- gonna check it out. Will Sherry, Trent. That reminds me a little bit of House. Remember the guy that was with? with oh, the, the I best. love that show where he was trying to figure yes. out the diseases that people had. Yeah. Yeah. Listener. <laughs> Sherry, you're great. Um, I'm a television buff with my sister. She's She knows everything. She used to work with you guys. Who? She who, knows who? Um, her name is Leslie. Leslie. It was Leslie Higgins at the time. It's Leslie Jenkins. And remember um, the old radio station? It's the Beasley Group now. Oh, oh yeah, yes, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. actually. Yeah, at our and old place. She is still there, Jim and Marjorie. Leslie is still with them, and it's wonderful. Well, say, say, but send anyway. our best. Thank you very much, yes, Sherry. That yes. was a great call. Thank you. By the way, Hugh Laurie is uh, the guy in house. Yeah, and he, he was is great. great. He is really great. Modern guy. Family. Modern Family is a great yeah. one too. Yeah. Old enough. I don't know that one. I don't know it either. Comfort show, just enough drama and excitement. Says uh, Julie from Amesbury. Uh, Roseanne. Old, wait, old enough is the little two-year-old. The Japanese show you're talking about, Aiden. Oh, Old oh, Enough is the oh, fabulous oh, show yeah, the kids where the they flags. send like little two-year-olds out to go to the supermarket. They cross like major highways, and it's a great, it's great, it's really great. Let's. Uh, where do you want to go, Marion? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What? Uh, someone I watch it once. Says, Buffy the Vampire. Marion Salem, you're next on Boston Public Radio. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? We're Thanks great. for taking my call. Thank you. I have I have three. Okay. Um, Boston Boston Legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I love the scenes of Boston, and I used to work for a company that was housed in 500 Poilson Street, so it's really nice to see that building. Oh, that is great. And be- Yeah, and because they cover every imaginable 
cultural issue outrageously. Mm. But you, you really get the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first one. Second one is Law and Order UK. Oh, listen and, to Margaret. Oh, She's writing this baby down. I am. Yeah. Go ahead. What about it? Yeah, uh, it's great. I love the characters. They 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 follow the same format as all the other Law, law mm. and Orders, but uh, love the characters. And the third one that just popped into my head was um, because when you mentioned Hugh Laurie. There was a series called The Night Manager. Oh, with great. With uh, Olivia Coleman, oh. right? Uh, yeah, was Olivia she? Coleman and, and Tom Hiddleston. That was fabulous. It was? I, that was fabulous. All right, I yeah. should go watch that. Really great. All these shows. How do I miss all that these That was shows? not comedy. That was serious stuff. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, thank you, Mary, Mary for that, that, was, for that, that was call. Good. Thank you. Our colleague Zoe, uh, Zoe says, I grew up watching House with my mom, live in perpetual fear. I have lupus. <laughs> I feel there's a lupus scare every other episode. And Jamie, our producer, says, I've been rewatching Golden Girls yeah, all the way through. That. It's still so good, even all these years later. And when I fall asleep, it's not like I missed anything. Nothing like a good B. Arthur side eye. And she gave us a great picture of her with like one really eyebrow fabulous. raised. Well, all those women were raised. fabulous. Yeah, that was a good show. Al on the road. What do you think, Al? Hey, Al. Hey, guys. Hi. Um, you got to go with, gotta go with Cheers. Oh, yeah, Cheers. Of oh yeah. yeah. And Ted Danson with that great hair. Which wasn't his. It wasn't? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's no, on his it hair. The last he Wait a minute. So so now he's got gray hair. Is that have, his he hair? He doesn't too? have any hair. He oh he's totally he's bald. bald yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, but go ahead. Um it's just a laugh every you know, every time Norm walks in the box, you know you got a good line coming. Every time Coates gets confused by something. You got another laugh coming. Every time Woody doesn't understand something, you get something else funny. You know, yeah. Rebecca was awesome. Diane Uh, was also fabulous. Even though Diane was awesome, is fantastic. Listen to him. Every time one of her kids gets in trouble, you know. I mean, we watched the whole series, and then after the last episode. We just sat at the beginning again. I love that. So that Al, is great. You know? you know, I was just in the back bay thinking: is the, the Cheers bar is no longer there, but they have the actual physical thing? There's is there. a line out on the street is every still, single day at the it, Hampshire yeah, Inn the, or whatever it, it's physically called. Physically, it's still Hampshire. there, but I don't yeah. think it's the same thing, is it? Is it Al? Do you know? Yeah, of course it is. It is. I, okay. I don't think it is. But no, wait know, a second. The, the bar. Wait, what do you mean that you don't think it? What are you talking the about? The physical thing is there, but it's I don't think it's... It's a strap now, yeah. Yeah, but I don't I know don't, it's the Cheers bar anymore. Serve. I think it is the Cheers yeah. bar. All right, In any case, Al, up, thank you. The look Cheers is a really good one, Okay. by the way. You know, I should have said, in terms of claim to fame, that woman said she watched that show because the building she used to work in Mm-hmm. was in the show. Are you aware of the fact that when Rocky gets to the top of the steps That's right, at Jim. the art museum in Rocky 1, it wasn't called Rocky 1, but Rocky, and he turns around when he gets to the top of the steps with his fists held high, whose apartment can you see in the right side of the screen, Marjorie? The Jim Browdy baby apartment. Not baby. I grew up in that apartment from about six or seven until I went to college. You know, I think the Cheers Bar is really still open. I, I told you it was. Yeah. You drive by there. There's a line all the time. It says Cheers Bar. I the didn't damn know it was thing. still it was Tom, still what's open. his name? Tom, what's the guy's name? Tom. I forget. Tom, what's his name? Begins with a K. Kershaw. Kershaw. Thank you. There you go. Is it Kershaw? Kershaw. Whatever. Yes, it is. Marion Medford, you're next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about comfort shows, courtesy of misconduct in the Globe today. Hello there. Hi. Hi. I wanted to say that uh, somebody already beat me to the punch, but the Golden Girls, that was the perfect. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Lots of people are saying that, Mary. 
Well, it was Saturday night, and it was international date night, and if you didn't have a date, you'd watch <laughs> The Golden Girls, all right? That's pretty good. And then the other one I loved, uh, two, two others, uh, well, actually, I loved Luther, but I also loved both the British and the American office. Especially Me too. The yeah, I did too. I I, I love I that show. I crazy smiling and laughing at all those characters. It's really a terrific show. Mary but Great thanks. Colt, thank you. Yeah. By the way, this texter unsigned, Jim should watch Borgen, which is the Copenhagen version of West Wing. I have watched Borgen. Is it really good? She, the woman whose name I don't know, who plays the prime minister, is Beyond spectacular. Whether really? She, I don't know what her name is, but Borgen's great. Yeah, it's really great. It's a not exactly people, noir, but... You know. A lot of people are into Law & Order SUV. But SVU, it's a comfort... SVU, rather. SVU. Laura from West Rock. Special Victims Unit. Total comfort watch. It's always the same, and you get to watch Olivia Benson exactly you said. kick butt. It is always the Who's same. Who's Olivia? I don't even know who that is. Who she's is the star. She's oh, one she of is? the star detectives. Oh. Yeah, she's on the show. And you see her. She's a, as a young detective, and then as an older, middle-aged oh, detective. Really exciting. Yeah, you see everybody grow up, and then you oh, see the stars really grow nice. up, and sometimes they leave, and they come back. Ice-T was on it for a long time. Is that really true? Absolutely. By the way, Perry Mason is what... I assume they meant... The original Perry Mason from like 400 years oh, ago. Oh, that was always the same, too. But you know, the new Perry Mason, which only had one season, is coming back is now. Good? With a guy from the Americans. What's the name of the star? Matthew Rice? Know. Is that how you say his I name? Don't know. Something like that. Reese, thank you very you much. You know what Aiden. no one's mentioned, Reese. which is very comforting? What's that? The British Baking Show. You yeah. Well, oh, that, that actually, uh, that was during the pandemic. Yeah, very That was the go to show. Very, all, everything is always green, and they have these beautifully arranged outdoor kitchens. Didn't you feel the tension, though, dollars. when they were in there judging? I mean, I felt tension. A lot less Paul tension. Paul Hollywood. Don't we have Paul Hollywood in the corner or whatever the hell it is? His six foot, life size version. They're actually putting it right in our line of vision in about 30 seconds. You want to see Paul Hollywood? There he is right there. Oh, that's right. There we only have time right for one more. We're Meredith and Providence. Hi, Meredith. Thank What's you for going calling. on? Curb your enthusiasm, Cynthia says. I'm going to say this. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Don't judge me, but I'm going to say it. Real Housewives of New Jersey, folks, (laughs) let me tell you something. When you are watching 11 seasons of that show, you learn so much about people. You learn a lot about fashion. And let me tell you something. I finished New Jersey. I'm on to New York. Oh, my God. The societal faux pas that are happening. And, like, you have one person who's dressing up in, like, things that they shouldn't be dressing up in. And you have people. It's just, if you want to learn about humans, Watch a reality TV show. Don't judge me. We're all housewives in New Jersey, close to New England area, right from Providence. I uh, let me tell you, I fall asleep, and my husband he does. He says, "Oh, I don't like that show. I don't like that show." Let me tell you something. He knows everything about it. And he's more into it than I am. So. Meredith, that was a great capper for a discussion. Thank you, Thank you for We've calling. We've got a lot. We've got so many of them: Gracie and Frank, Modern Family. Uh, um, Breaking Bad, Jim, one of your favorite shows. That's really a relaxing a people, show. Yeah, lo- well, that's not relaxing at all, but a lot of people love Modern Family, which I think is pretty... I never watched that British either. murder mysteries, particularly PBS British mm-hmm. murder... Those are pretty soothing, too, even though they involve the uh, the demise of somebody. We're out of time, Marjorie. Jim, my favorite TV is watching repeats. I taped Greater Boston <laughs> shows with Jim Browdy, and I watched them. As often as I can. So there you go. That's two of us. That you're do not. That. You're not gone. You're still in the in the thank homes of many of our listeners. I didn't listeners. think I was gone, but thank okay, you. Okay, thank you very much for tuning in today and sharing all your great uh, insights with us. Keep up with us twenty four seven. We have our podcast tomorrow. 
NBC's Chuck Todd is going to be with us, former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Cabral, the Boston Globe's business columnist Shirley Young, former Massachusetts Secretary of Education Paul Revel, and the folks from the Cambridge Jazz Festival will be singing live in our Brighton studio. That should be great. We want to thank our crew who shared their favorite TV shows with us just now, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Nicole Garcia, Hannah Loss. Our engineer is back with us, John McClaw Parker, and our executive producer is Jenny Bologna. Jim? Yeah? Have a good day. Well, thank you. <laughs> have a good day. <laughs> I'm trying to mix well, it you up. Have, I, I hope there are many Law & Order SVUs in your future, Go right Marjorie. home now to watch Law & Order SVU. You know SVU. how to live, let me tell you. I can fit you. in quite a few between now and summertime. It's a beautiful thing. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thanks again for tuning in today. I hope you can tune in tomorrow, and I hope you do. I'd like Jim. Have a great day. Bye.